This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, along with Terry South and Jeffrey Liam Simpson. The gang's all here. We're locked and loaded, ready for another great day for you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Mom. That's Mom and my aunts, Uncle Larry. Got a great show today. We're going to be talking about garbage. Isn't it funny that everybody has an Uncle Larry? Yeah. I actually don't have an Uncle Larry. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Do you have an Uncle Larry? No. Okay. <laughs> it is funny though how everybody has one except us. Um we got a we got a great show Garbology is the book we're going to be covering. It's um by one of my favorite uh like researcher authors Edward Humes. He's he's done we did a show with him about um technology and how much it costs to make like a cell phone and how much no transportation and how much we we have to move all of the goods to make a cell phone. Right. And crazy numbers of miles were traveled just to get a cell phone into your little paw. Not your dad, your hand, into your hand. And yet we still don't appreciate it. Yeah. And yet you're still mad that it's so slow. Well, you know, maybe you shouldn't have 5,000 pictures on it and well, 4,400 texts. And that really has to do with the speed of your internet, too. Yeah. And the speed of your own brain. I mean, I've noticed sometimes, have you ever like thought to yourself, okay, I'm going to go do that on my phone, and you pick up your phone, and then you can't remember what you were going to do? You're Constantly. Gonna, yeah. That, you know what that means? You're messed up. Messed up. It also happens every day where I go to look up some actor or movie trailer, and then I'm miles away from where I started as far as the content. Oh. It's like, how did I get to this video with dancing cats? Oh, you saw that one? Yeah, I sent, yeah. I sent you that one. You just don't know how you got there. I got it from Terry. Terry loves a good dancing cat. So he sends me every dancing cat video he's got. And usually I'm not into the dancing cat. I mean, give me a dancing dog any day. Not true. But um, what do you mean? I don't like cats. Cats are evil. Good point. Me either. Yeah, I, I'm allergic I'm to I'm going to agree with you on that one. We kind of we've been Do- really dogs at least attempt to be your friend. Yeah, they cats li- they just look you. at you like, all right, go ahead. Cats give me food. are always up to something, right? <laughs> Do you guys really? Do you really think like cats are they're up to something? Oh yeah. Or are they just being a cat? We have this neighborhood cat that one half of his body hair is missing, and he's always hanging out at our house, throwing up. Wanting my girls to pet him, and I say, don't you dare touch that cat. Well, if you get a pet The definition of mangy. But make sure you pet the side that has the hair. We were thinking about getting an airsoft gun, and then one day he shows up and all of a sudden has a collar on. Oh, wow. So we're like, oh, Oh, I guess I'm glad we didn't do anything about it. He's not quite as feral as I thought he was. So So you could shoot it with an airsoft gun, but now that it has an owner, you can't? Right. Oh, that makes sense. There is a yeah. line of morality right there. <laughs> you know what it is is now you now you know someone could come after you. Well, yeah, uh, that's a good point. Hey, speaking of coming after somebody, um, Edward, or, uh, what's his name? Hughes? Mitch Mitch oh. McConnell. Oh, I thought we were going scissor hands or something. Yeah, Edward Scissorhands. Mitch McConnell and the president are in a little feud. They're having a little, uh, you know, a little battle over who's responsible 
wrong for all of the failing legislation, right? The things that aren't passing. Mm. President blames Mitch, but Mitch, and by the way, Mitch's approval rating is way down, like eighteen percent in his home district, yeah, of Kentucky. That's a big deal. Yeah, you're wrong. That's where the money is. Right. The vote is, but uh, so that's going back and forth. So which, the next question is: Does Trump try to primary the, you know, the leader of the Senate? Oh, probably. Why not? He's primarying everyone else. Right. And uh, they're battling, but then, you know, to the press, they're not. We're not, but we're good. No, we're, we're, we're good. I'm we're the same very, page. very good buddies. But behind the scenes, Mitch is saying, I think he's crazy. Or well, he, want, to that effect. he wants to shut down the government over wall funding. Yeah. And the Republicans are like, what? What are we talking? I mean, because they're going to probably shut down the government anyways over just funding. I think yeah. we actually uh, – we have audio of him. He thought that he hung up with President Trump. Oh. This oh, is his great. reaction after he thought that he hung oh, up with President Trump. Everything's leaking out of the White House now. Ah! There you go. Mm. 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 That sounds, sounds like about, that guy in the car crash yesterday. Sounds about right, though. Sounds like McConnell's in, really hurting there. Yeah. He needs an emotional – he needs someone to lean on. Maybe the transportation secretary. His wife. His wife. <laughs> How great would that be? You're, you, you go home. Trump's beating you up. You roll over in bed and look in the eyes of his secretary of transportation. I stood next to him as he defended Nazis. So, hey, eh, Yeah, that Because <laughs> she did. She was right next yeah, to him. They just can't. You can't win. You just he, – he's – again, hey, he's the president of the United States. This is – this is what people voted for because they because they wanted something different and they got it. Oh, it's different. Oh, it's totally different. Definitely different. I mean, it used to be that you'd fight with the Democrats. Hmm. Oh, by the way, are the Democrats even alive anymore? They're just sort of sitting back and letting things kind of implode. implode. They're because in hiding. They. I read something today. They feel like uh, the Democrats feel as if they have Trump sort of boxed in. Yeah. He has very few options anymore because the Republicans aren't working with him. So, eh. isn't he trying to draw some Democrats in those states that he won? You better start playing ball with me, mm-hmm. because if uh, he, I think he almost even alluded to the fact that we know the Republicans aren't going to play ball with me now. Right. So you better start playing ball with me because we need more votes, and if we do that, then you won't lose your livelihood. That's what they're trying. I mean, apparently there was some reports that President Trump was on the phone with Republicans who are trying to work with Democrats. Maybe on health care, maybe on some tax reform ideas. Yeah. And he's critic he calls them up and it was kind of yelling at them for crossing that line and, and working with, you know, the enemy, basically. Mm. And they're just like, Well, you have no pull with me because you're currently at like thirty nine, thirty five percent approval ratings. My state's kind of wavering on you, so I can have some freedom to step out and try something new. Right. Because th- they tried. And yeah. the Republicans won't work with the, each other. No. So. It's it's a mess. He knows this is for four years, right? Oh, I know. I think he just, I think he thought, you know, it was for eight, actually. Oh. And okay. it might, you know what? It might be. Because they, they did Democrats a, uh, aren't doing anything. Republicans are all infighting. Trump's running in circles. He a, hates the media. Did you know that he hates the media? Yeah, constantly. What? There was, yeah, I just there, heard that. There was a mock caucus, Republican caucus. A mockus, they they're yeah, called. Yeah, a mockus. So a mock, like a mock <laughs> primary. And they put all the potential Republican candidates against Trump. 
and he still won by like 30%. Like wow. Ted oh, Cruz no. Ted Cruz was number 2 and Trump had 30% on on Cruz. So. Wow. God bless America. He's at least getting the <laughs> Republican nomination. Yeah. At least at this point. At this point. I I honestly think again I think we we talked about this a long time ago. He doesn't even want the job. He really doesn't. I don't know about that. I, I, he doesn't. Want he it. wants parts of the job. Oh, Wrong. sure, sure, sure. He yeah. wants the airplane. And, but yeah. I think, and we said this when he was running, he, I think I, I was even saying he's going to run into a point where he's, he will realize this isn't a good job right? compared to what he's used to having and the mm-hmm. freedom he's used to having. He can't even get Secret Service now paid for all of his family that he has to protect. Do you think he's there yet? Oh, yeah. You think he's there? He doesn't I, think it's a good job? He may get there if he's in his fourth meeting of the day on tax reform. Oof. Oh, yeah. That's brutal well, for anybody. And yeah, exactly. There's there's a point where he wants to be stroked more and he's not being stroked. I mean, he, right. you're the president of the United States, so you're always going to have people praising you or, or hating you or whatever. But he wants a more constant barrage of it and more freedom to go do whatever he wants and to be, you know, to be doing, I think, more things than he's doing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't love – I mean, would you love every part of this job? No. Would you love half of the part? Of, I mean, I, I, how many you know chicken dinners can you eat? But it's always free. You show up and somebody has something, yeah, but whatever f- you want. Yeah. Dirt is free. But what mm. are you going to do with it? Dirt's kind of expensive, actually. Depends on what kind of dirt you're buying. Okay, let's get to the headlines. Terry, what else is going on that we should be paying attention to? President Trump called on the nation to heal in a wide-ranging speech to the American Legion Convention in Reno, Nevada on Wednesday, hours after delivering a divisive remarks at a campaign-style rally in Arizona. It's time to heal the wounds that have divided us and seek a new unity based on the common values that unite us, Mr. Trump said. Hold on. Huh? Huh? Oh, so he's saying we, we, we're going to heal yeah, yeah. the wounds that he created an hour the earlier? The day before, yes. The, okay, that makes sense. We are one people with one home and one flag. The president's message of unity contrasted with his speech the night before in Arizona, where he insulted Republican Arizona uh, Senator Jeff Flake, derided the news media, and defended his controversial comments about Charlottesville, Virginia by... A, leaving out the part that everyone was, like, questioning. Well, and, by the way, and dividing the Republican Party against each other and beating up Mitch McConnell and... Uh Uh-huh. But we're we're one. Oh, and kicking everybody out and... Okay. We're unified. Mr. Trump's uh, trip to Arizona and Nevada this week is the farthest west he has been since taking office. Really? Yeah. (laughs) He didn't want to leave. He went to, like, I think he went Mississippi, maybe, that far east, and that was it. Now he's gone... He's gone all the way to Arizona and Nevada. Supporters of former San Francisco 49er quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who refused to stand for the national anthem to protest police brutality against blacks, showed their solidarity with him and his cause at a rally outside the National Football League headquarters on Wednesday, demanding that he be signed by the start of the regular season next month. More than 1,000 people, many wearing jerseys bearing his name, crowded the steps outside the NFL's Midtown Manhattan offices. Kaepernick, who once Mm. took the 49ers to the Super Bowl, opted out of his contract with the team in March and remains unsigned. Supporters say he's being blackballed for his advocacy, but some critics say he should not have sat or kneeled during the anthem or contend his lack of a job is more about his on-field talent. Yeah. So if he doesn't get signed, then everybody's racist, right? Well, well the this NFL is the is NFL. The NFL, they're okay signing pretty much anyone that will play, right? Well, yeah. It's really good. It's confusing because there's probably about 
10 quarterbacks that are signed as like backups yeah. that he's better than. Oh, yeah. Absolutely better. Well, but, but again, but the NFL's also a PR machine, right? So they're, anything they're, that they appear to be okay with wife beaters, uh, sure, with Jeez. drug offenders, with violent mm-hmm. act people. You know, you know, you have firearm charges, but but you kneel during the national anthem. That's a line we just can't cross. Well, now wait a minute. How many times when you're sending out birthday or wedding invitations do you realize after the fact? Oh. <gasps> We forgot to invite the Johnsons. Yeah. Maybe it's the same thing here. Maybe they just forgot about it. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it's in the mail. Except every time a new quarterback is signed, they go, what about Kaepernick? And they're like, well, you know. The Baltimore Baltimore Ravens owner did ask his fans to pray for him on the decision on the back of quarterback. Okay, yeah. Because he says it's very difficult and very tough, and we're not sure what to do. So pray for me. Okay. So, you know, pray for that decision. Throwing that out there. Popularity in high school isn't predictive of long-term happiness, at least according to a new study published Monday in Child Development. ABC News reports the study followed 169 high school students for a decade starting when they were 15 years old. Researchers found high schoolers with a few good close friends were ultimately happier at 25 than those that were widely popular. Hmm. Uh, it says youth with higher levels of, of attachment to their best friends appear to have better so- uh, psychological health. Uh, says the researchers, and even more adaptive stress responses during adolescence, according to the study's authors. Uh, teens will be better off if they have a, a few tight BFFs, That's if you cool. will. Yeah. The difference in happiness, uh, they don't manifest until after high school, but, but the study found that by 25, youths who had a few close friendships as teens had better self-worth and fewer symptoms of depression, while youths who were widely popular in high school were more likely to have social anxiety. But can I keep that? I need that for my 30-year reunion. <laughs> we will be... I'll be quoting that one. Why are you depressed? At you were the 30-year reunion. That'll serve you right. Remember when you put my head in the toilet? You're now cleaning that toilet, aren't you? <laughs> and finally, back in February, British firefighters rescued 18 piglets and two sows from a burning barn where more than 60 tons of hay had caught on fire. Ooh. Almost exactly six months later, the Telegraph reports that the firefighters reconnected with the pigs in the form of sausages. Uh-oh. Yeah. After uh, the two-week-old piglets were saved, the farmer promised to bring the sausages to the firefighters once the animals had been fattened up. What? Farm manager Rachel Rivers described it to the BBC as a good way of saying thank you. According to The Guardian, the firefighters appeared to appreciate the gesture, calling it a chance to sample the fruits of our labors and declaring the sausages fantastic. Well, why did we save them? (laughs) Well, at the time, they were piglets. You've got to fatten them up, and then you can, like, enjoy them. Wow. That's pretty morbid. <laughs> kind of is. The, but at the same time, I mean, they're, if they're farm animals, it's what that's the purpose, right? Well, but... Get me hungry already, Yeah, yeah but... <laughs> Jeff's over there working his pigs. Um, but now you've set a weird precedence because every time they go to a fire, the firefighter's mm. going to think like, hey, I wonder what I can eat in there. Right. Can we get some of this in six months? And, like, and if, if it was an adult pig, would they say, let's let the place burn? Well, they, they saved a couple sows. Hmm. Jeff, let that your... one's surly. Yeah, that one. Get him. He's so. so what do you what do you think? Is that that's weird? I mean, there's there's an odd. I mean, part I get about... it. I get it. It's part of the cycle of life, right? But well, the farm. Yeah, it's just I just think it's weird that a bunch of firefighters are like murder that their victim of our fire that we saved. Eat it, eat it. I mean, it's just weird. Yeah. I mean, it could be worse. Uh, absolutely. Right. It could have been. Cows, 
Is that worse? Be like Turkeys. burgers, turkey dinner. Man, we got a lot of animals in here today. By the way, did you hear the uh, the uh, crazy story about uh, Trump uh, ecstasy? Did we talk about it on air? Or no, what? I mentioned to you yesterday off the show. Apparently, a stash of ecstasy, the pills, the, the pill, the pills, the drugs, uh, the drug ecstasy of about five thousand pills were pressed into the shape of President Trump's head. So hmm. the pill looked like not Fred Flintstone, but it looked like Donald Trump, and it was like an orange color. I don't know why. And um, it had a street value of about forty six thousand dollars. They were expired, I guess, but I don't know how. I don't know how your ecstasy expires. Yeah, I'm not sure. But in the end, um, not up so, on my, my ecstasy I'm not processing. Either. So now all of a sudden, Trump pills are out there to get you high. Hmm. Okay. I mean, is the presidency not respected anymore? Uh, no. I wonder if there were like Obama pills. There probably were. Bush pills? Probably. Hmm. I don't know if ecstasy was really the uh, the popular drug it was now know. back then. but Those Nixon pills were kind of bitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Okay. Well, up next, garbology. We'll, we'll, we'll be talking about how we have this dirty love affair with trash with the uh, wonderful uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Edward Humes. Straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live and lead a healthier life. Why is it that as Americans, our instinct is ha- is to have this unprecedented readiness to throw things away? We throw about 10 million plastic grocery bags out, 45 million newspapers, 500 million straws every single day. And at what point will we run out of room for all of this waste? Well, here to help us uh, talk trash is uh, a really renowned guest, Edward Humes. He's been on the program before. He's the author of Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash, and uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author. He's been on the show before talking to us about Door to Door, the magnificent, maddening, mysterious world of transportation. And today we are going to pick his brain about garbage. Uh, Edward, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Matt. So, okay. So what gets you so interested in studying and writing about garbage? <laughs> well, you'd be surprised how fascinating our trash is. You know, uh, our, our the stuff we throw away is literally the biggest thing we make in our in our lives, both daily and, and throughout our lifetime. Uh, it's one of America's leading products. It's our largest export in terms of volume. We our largest trash. export is garbage? It is and scrap and all the things we throw away. Yeah. So, uh, and and the fascinating thing about it is that we're pretty much unaware of just how trashy we are, and <laughs> and how much waste is built into our daily lives. And and it's because we have this brilliant but kind of insane system of waste management. Uh, that's the term of art we use for how we roll our stuff to the curb. Uh, every week or so, and poof, it's gone. And we don't have to think about it. We don't have to see it. We don't have to wonder where it goes. It's just swept away. And so because we're so good at getting rid of it, we we just get – we produce more of it. 
Yes, but the kicker is we're not actually getting rid of it. We're just moving it around. Because you notice that term, waste management, it's not waste reduction or waste elimination. We manage our waste, which really means we're hiding it from ourselves, kind of hiding it in plain sight. Uh, And it causes all sorts of uh, problems. And if you think about waste in the broadest possible terms, you'll find that it's at the root of most of our big problems. Uh, uh, Plastic pollution in our ocean, contamination of our food chain, climate change is all about the gas that is the waste product of things that we burn and and create energy with. So if you think about trash in the broadest possible terms, it's really at the bottom of uh, a lot of bad things. And it's also a huge cost. I mean, think about it. We use the term waste in a lot of different ways, but, you know, from a little kid, you're told, well, don't waste your food. Uh, don't be wasteful. Well, the reason we don't like to be wasteful uh, in a conscious way is because it costs us to waste stuff. You know, businesses and governments are always talking about cutting the waste, right? Mm-hmm. So wasting is an evil. And yet, again, it's if you look at any segment of our economy, waste is a huge drag on it. I mean, we waste more of the energy we produce than we actually use constructively. There's oh. a chart that the uh, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory puts out every year that shows where our energy comes from and where it goes. And the single biggest category of where our energy goes is waste. <laughs> Unbelievable. And do I guess as Americans, are we wasting more per capita than anywhere else, I guess, too? Yes, we are the trashiest people on Earth. <laughs> it's... Uh, one of our leadership uh, uh, areas that uh, we don't really boast much about. The average American uh, throws away about uh, 7.1 pounds of trash a day. Wow. Um, that's every man, woman, and child, so that's an average. That's and crazy. That translates across the average lifetime of an American to 102 tons of trash. Just an American. How, what does that look like compared to other countries? Well, it's about three times higher than the um, average Japanese uh, consumer. It's uh, uh, about 50% more than the average uh, Danish person. So if you look at the other um, uh, our sort of economic peers around the globe, we, we are considerably more wasteful per person, and we recycle less and repurpose uh, our our waste less than most uh, uh, of these other countries as well. And we we tend to throw stuff in landfills, you know, town dumps uh, more than uh, our peer nations. Uh, A a real big contrast is here in the the U.S. We throw about uh, 69% of our trash into into landfills, uh, Germany uh, disposes about one percent of its waste that way. Oh my! Uh, so they, they're they're recycling they, the rest. They're recycling insanely, and they're also making energy uh, and in uh, sort of clean next gen waste energy plants, uh, uh, which is not a technology that we use very effectively. Although there are is some in the U.S. Unbelievable. Again, we're speaking with Edward Humes, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of the book Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. And, the, and um, he's written a bunch of books. And I, what I love about how you go about writing, Edward, is it's almost you, – you almost just blow our minds with facts. And I, I guess part of what I'm 
I'm wondering is why don't we know this? Like we <laughs> we're the trashiest people in the world, and we don't even know it. Uh, well, it's because it's become habitual. It's 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 so big and it's so uh, uh, omnipresent in our daily lives that we don't really see it anymore. You know, it's a great book uh, came out uh, I want to say about ten years ago, Fast Food Nation. Mm-hmm. You've heard of it, many yeah. of your listeners have heard of it, and. What the author there uh, did was look at a very common day uh, aspect of our daily lives. You can't drive uh, more than a mile or two in any kind of uh, uh, urban or suburban area and not see a fast food outlet. And and yet nobody thought to ask the question, what is this doing to us? What's it doing to our food supply? And that's the kind of story I love. That's why I, 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 I tackled trash, because it's everywhere, but... So much so we don't see it anymore, mm. and we don't understand how we uh, how we're creating waste uh, unnecessarily, and the reasons for it, and the history of it. it. It's it's the history of our of our trashiness is really quite fascinating. And you you brought this up in your um, in your other book, Door to Door: The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation. That some of it is just isn't it just based in our consumerism? Like we're so busy being the best marketplace and and selling all of these great goods that we don't know how they're being manufactured. Like you mentioned that an iPhone has to travel. Like what's the number of miles in order to get to you? Well, if you count all the materials that go into it, it's about uh, uh, 500 um, million, I believe, is what I came up yeah, with. Yeah, it was know, some 500, crazy. 500,000 miles. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're fine. 500,000 miles to get every part into an iPhone, to get it transported, to get everything manufactured, and then to us. But it's it's, it's about consumerism, isn't it? And isn't, isn't that what's going on with our trash is we're so busy on the front end buying that we almost don't pay attention to what's happening on the back end. Of the of the the garbage, the trash. Exactly, and and the re- there's a couple reasons for that. One is that we're you know we devised these systems of of movement of both goods and and waste that uh, keep it out of view. You know we don't we don't see it, and, and then we sort of have this this feeling that it just magically disappears when we roll <laughs> to the curb, but it ends up in all kinds of bad places. Our, our waste does, and. And we see the same thing about the kind of, in the transportation space. How much, um, how many miles we embed in everything you look at in your house? Uh, thousands and hundreds of thousands of miles embedded in each product, and there's a huge cost associated with that on the environment and on traffic and all kinds of other things that that we don't really account for in the, how we price our goods or how we price our our waste disposal, and and that's coming. Come at the bite us in the butt one of these days. Yeah. Because those, those, those costs pile up. Well, why? You have to pay them. What do the other countries, you were talking about Germany, because it seems like we would want a lower cost, right? We would want, we understand that there's not infinite uh, landfills to keep stuffing this this garbage in. How come other countries are, I mean, I would just think just from an economic model, it would make more sense to recycle, to reuse, to you know, to repurpose this content or this this garbage, why have we not caught on to it just because of a fiscal reason? Forget environmental, just fiscally. Well, that's a great question. And in some ways, we, we are catching on. If you look at uh, a number of um, familiar businesses and uh, uh, 
uh, I'll cite as an example, Walmart, uh, had, some years ago really tackled the issue of waste and, and uh, saw it as not altruism or environmentalism, but it is exactly what you're saying, a way of, of cutting costs and enhancing profits and giving them a competitive advantage. So, you know, you hear, well, who's who's really good on the, on the green front and isn't, you know, is recycling a lot? And you say, oh, it must be Portland or it must be Seattle yeah. or San Francisco, right? There's kind of right. leaders in that space. Walmart, if it was a city, would re- out-recycle all those places. <laughs> and here's this red, this red state company uh, that yeah. is not known for its altruism, uh, has cut its trash to, to landfill by 80%. Oh, wow. And Which is huge. Yeah. Uh, they, they recycle, and the reason they do that is because instead of paying uh, to have a trash hauler come and take their waste away, they are being paid by companies who want their recyclables and to, to turn them into products. They oh, interesting. They their food waste and sell it as a product in their gardening centers. They, they have found ways to monetize their trash and actually turn it from red ink into black ink. Brilliant. And, I mean, really. And that has, that has led to a uh, 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 kind of me tooism in a very good way if, because other businesses look at Walmart and knowing they don't do anything that doesn't enhance their bottom line, say, hey, there must be something to this, this sustainable uh, sustainability stuff, this recycling business. We should get into that, too. So there has been movement in the private sector uh, toward uh, being less wasteful. But um, in some ways, that just enables us to consume even more yeah, right. stuff and, and, uh, and, and, and not really make us less wasteful overall. There's another big problem, too, is that uh, and other countries are a little more moving forward in, in, in this area than, than the U.S. is, and that is the actual materials that make up our waste stream. If you, let's say we go out for takeout food. What does that look like? Well, you get a styrofoam clamshell with your food in it, and they'll put it in a plastic bag, and there'll be a little packet of plastic utensils in there uh, with a napkin and all, and that'll be wrapped in plastic. Now, theoretically, every one of those items is recyclable, but in practice, particularly in the U.S., none of them will be recycled. They will all either end up in a landfill, or they'll end up in our waterways or in our ocean where the problem of plastic pollution is a, is a growing threat to the health of the oceans and the, the, the health of our food supplies. None of that stuff gets recycled. So we're making stuff we know we're going to throw away, we know is going to enter our waste stream, and yet there's nothing you can do with that material that makes any economic or environmental sense. Mm, now, ah. Unbelievable. And and we keep doing it and we keep doing it over and over and over and not thinking about it. Again, we're speaking with Edward Humes. Uh, the book is Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash and How Folks, We as Americans, the Trashiest of Them All. Nobody's producing more and exporting more trash than uh, we are here in the United States. Something not really to be proud of. Uh, We'll continue the journey and the discussion more with Edward when we come back. We're going to also be talking about the life cycle of garbage. What actually happens when you put it on the curb and or the dumpster and where it ends up going and some of the other issues along with that garbology. Fun stuff, uh, interesting learning straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
So why is it that Americans are so into throwing stuff away? Well, if you uh, wanted more information and understanding behind our tendency to just trash, uh, you know, throw garbage into the trash and not pay attention to it, then the book you need to be reading is Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. It's written by a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author Edward Humes. He's been on the show before, uh, also talking about his other book, Door to Door, The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation. And again, Edward, thank you for giving us this insight on garbage. My pleasure. And uh, boy, oh boy, you were talking about before the break our tendency to just kind of unknowingly package, you know, uh, just to even have a lunch. We have five or six things that have to be thrown away. Most of them are recycled, but we don't recycle them. And we just keep handing out spoons. We just keep handing out napkins uh, without asking, assuming they need to be done. Um, in the end, I guess you ha- you have enough complaints that you never give us enough napkins. So are companies just not thinking? Because again, I would look at a napkin if I ran a business as whatever, a nickel. Every napkin's a nickel. Every single napkin's a nickel. So maybe ask them if they want napkins and give them one napkin or two napkins. I, I guess it's we just are too into – do we not care? Do we not know? Do we just – is it irrelevant? Well, it's definitely not irrelevant. And, you know, one thing we as, as citizens and consumers could do is just refuse stuff like that. You don't really need a lot of that material. Yeah, you take it out. If you're not going to use it, you could just leave it on the counter or hand it back to the exactly. person. That, that's, one, that's a quick fix. But the larger problem is that we've sort of – you take like a plastic uh, grocery bag, it has a useful life of a few minutes, but it has a waste life of 500 years. And if it gets in the ocean, those plastics are floating around in the ocean. Uh, Tons and tons of it are added every year. Uh, So so part of it is a bad design. And then finally, part of it is that we're sort of subsidizing these wasteful products. Because if I, uh, you know, if I drive up to your house and dump a bunch of trash on your lawn. Well, you could call the police. You could sue me. Uh, I could be forced to pay for what I've done. But now if you look at the the folks who design products that they know are going to be thrown away, they know are going to find their way way into the ocean, um, they're not required to clean up their mess. You know, they create these products. And and the perfect example is junk mail. You know, it's a national problem junk mail and here's not only because it's a pain in the neck to have it stuffed in their mailbox but because one out of every hundred pounds that ends up in our landfill is junk mail one out of every hundred pounds in our landfill is junk mail. it's huge and unwanted and wasteful because what do you do with junk mail? you throw it away nobody really wants it nobody reads it and who's responsible for cleaning it up the people who create this waste no that's one reason why it's a successful economic model, because they don't have to pay to clean up their mess. We do. Uh, and then there's a second hidden subsidy, because who gets the lowest postal rate? Oh, there sure. Is? Junk mailers. And who subsidizes the rest of us who pay full price for our mail? So it's the perfect example of how something we can barely see anymore and we just think is an unavoidable problem, we're actually subsidizing a pernicious form of waste and letting people walk the hook. Is the answer then like a tax, like a junk mail tax? Is that what we do? 
people hate the word tax. I prefer to think of it as pay your own way. If yeah. you're making a making waste, you should clean it up. That's <laughs> true. And uh, you know that's the American way, isn't it? You pay your own freight. You don't get subsidized. Right. And yet we are subsidizing waste. So instead of calling it a tax and people moan and groan and say, "Oh, one more tax," you think of no. If you're making waste, you have to take ownership of it and clean it up. I think that's fair, but we don't do that. We do the opposite of that. Well, and you'd, you'd quit doing that immediately, right? Because those fit, those costs would be handed on. So there, there's the vendors that are probably creating all the junk mail, and they're doing it for companies, and they'd pass those expenses on to the companies, and then the companies would realize, let's just go online to bug people. Let's not Let's not drop it in the mail anymore. Let's just find other ways to do it. Well, and another way to do it is to say, okay, now there's all kinds of ways you can create packaging, and some of it is environmentally benign. Some of it is easily recycled. The perfect substance to be recycled turns out to be aluminum because it can be infinitely recycled and reused hmm. without, without degradation. Other products you can't say that about, um, plastic particularly. Uh, and also, it takes 99% less energy, water, and resources to recycle aluminum than it does to mine it and process it from scratch. Hmm. So it's, it's a win-win all around. So there's some materials we can use that, for packaging that are really pretty, pretty good. And then there's others like styrofoam and uh, plastic film and, uh, and composite plastic paper materials that just can't be recycled economically or can't be recycled at all. Hmm. Uh, I would say we need a national policy that favors products that are uh, and packaging that are easily recyclable and reusable over ones that are not and create uh, benefits and tax breaks or tax penalties. Which choice manufacturers make? I think we quickly see a huge reduction in our waste stream if we adopted the policies that put the costs where they belong. Yeah. Well, and it seems like we should be innovating more, like fewer bottles for our drinks and more cans again, or invent the can into a different form. If if people want bottles that they can close, then find an aluminum can that can close. I mean, it's just, it's almost like our innovation is stifled Simply because everyone, like you're saying, there's no consequence to doing it any other way. Exactly, exactly. And so, of course, people will continue doing the the path of least resistance. That's human nature, and it's understandable from a business point of view. But uh, we, there, there is. I the best number I can give you is sort of a a visual number. Um, The amount of plastic that's dumped into the world's oceans. Uh, every year yeah. is roughly equivalent to 40 uh, Nimitz-class aircraft carriers. These are the largest <laughs> ships in the world. There's immense floating cities that are air, yeah. are, uh, naval aircraft carriers. There's only 10 of them in the world, uh, in the U.S. fleet. Uh, but the weight equivalent of 40 of those are lost at sea uh, every year. Every year in, the in trash. Plastic that's dumped in there. Now, think about the volume of that. Those ships are made out of steel and, yeah. and extremely heavy materials. Plastic's very light. So we're talking about immense volumes of plastic loosed into the into our oceans. And, and it's, as a result, a recent survey of, of, of fish being sold in uh, markets in San Francisco found one in four had plastic in their guts. Oh, my heavens. Yeah. 
So now it's our it's entering our food source it's and our inner entering our food chain. What how do you see this is going in the future? I mean, because it, you we had President Obama in there and I don't know if you know being more enver- environmentally minded was was going to make a dent in this. Um is it I don't know. I I just I wonder how this will ever change. Uh, drastically enough to make a difference. Is it really more the businesses and the people that are going to have to make this happen um, versus government? Yeah, because because uh, waste is kind of a is kind of a local thing, and and where we're seeing the most innovation are are in individual businesses and and individual communities, and cities where people are waking up. You you know, there's communities all over the country have placed the uh, bans or fees on. Uh, on plastic grocery bags, for instance, which is, you know, I interviewed the the head of a a company that makes reusable bags, and he said, you know, I think of of plastic grocery bags as the gateway drug to waste. And if we (laughs) get people that offer that drug, then they're ready to say, oh, maybe we don't need plastic water bottles either. And, and, And it's sort of one product after another that's needlessly wasteful gets eliminated that way. Well, that's what communities are doing, and it's effective. You look at the Los Angeles County put a, a ten cent fee on uh, disposable uh, paper grocery bags and outright banned plastic bags, and everybody was really upset about yeah. it. They thought it was going to be a disaster. They'd have to repeal it. And they were angry, and and you know a year later there was a seventy five percent reduction in the use of disposable. Bags in Los Angeles County, the largest county in America, nine million people, hmm. uh, because they didn't want to pay a dime. It was that easy to change nine million people's behavior right. uh, with one thin dime. Because and they started bringing their own bags to to, to the store with them, and it just wasn't a big deal. Right. And that's how easy it can be to be less wasteful. And I interviewed a family up in Northern California for for biology, the Johnson family. They had cut their waste after they recycled and compost and kind of used their own packaging when they went to this. They shopped in places to buy in bulk and brought their own containers, and they did all these cool things to be less wasteful. The trash that they actually had to send to the landfill in a year barely filled a single mason jar. What? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Well, they took it as far as you could take it, and most of us probably couldn't or wouldn't do that, but if you did... 20%, 30% 20%, right. 30% of what this family did. And the kicker was their household expenses went down radically because they stopped buying a lot of stuff that they decided they didn't really need or want. And uh, it removed, and also by by buying fresh, unpackaged food rather than packaged processed food, they eliminated huge quantities of waste from, yeah. their, from their daily trash flow and got healthier at the same time. So it had an added benefit. So they they cut their household expenses by forty percent. They started going on better vacations. They had more <laughs> money to save up for the kids' college fund, all because they cut waste out of their daily lives and and made it intentional. I think maybe that's the key to this too: is in the intentionality of it. Get get focused on it. Recognize it's an issue, which is why Edward, I love the book Garbology: Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. Let's make it so Americans aren't the trashiest people around. That's just a great way to look at it. Even Walmart is 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 doing what they're they're doing what they can that what they can do to uh, 
to impact their own bottom line as well. Powerful stuff. Edward Humes is his name. The name of the book again, Garbology, uh, and again, go go to Edward um, go to edwardhumes.com to find out more information uh, about Edward and all of his books. He's a wonderful writer and researcher, and we're honored to have him on the show. We'll continue the discussion and the journey, folks. Doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show, right here on BYU Radio. So if we've got all this garbage, as Edward Humes is teaching us, uh, it might come from the fact that we eat so many processed foods, we eat so much stuff, and the stuff we eat has a lot of garbage associated with it. Like he was talking about napkins and what everything that's included in the food you get it for fast food, all the containers, all the wrappers, everything, it's just garbage. Mm-hmm. So garbage in, garbage out, as he taught us. Except apparently we have favorite types of garbage that we like to consume. Some states prefer consuming certain foods and hate other foods. Terry found a list of um, the foods around the country that states prefer the least. So there's a dating app called Hater, right? It's a dating app. Which matches users based on the things they hate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We heard about that. Um, So what they did was users can swipe to show approval or dislikes for a person, activity, item, concept, including food. Since February, more than 600,000 users have swiped on the app's 3,000 topics over 100 million times. Wow. That's a huge cross-section. So now they're looking at each, depending on what state you're in, and then they correlate in that state, what's the most hated food product? (laughs) Cool. Cool. Okay. Let's go through let's go through the country. Florida. Yeah. They don't like licorice. What? Yeah. Uh let's see. Do they uh, specify Twizzlers or just, Red Vines? It just says licorice. Okay. Hmm. Uh North Carolina doesn't like cottage cheese. Oh, I love cottage cheese. Uh let's see. Georgia doesn't like tuna salad. Really? Yeah. Um let's see here. New York has a problem it looks like with ranch on pizza. Oh, I do too. And you're from California. Oh yeah. I love ranch on pizza. What's up with that? Hmm. I love everything on pizza. Massachusetts looks like they're not big fans of mayonnaise on fries. Hmm. You got to put some ketchup in there with it. Vermont is not a fan of spray cheese. Oh, wow. And after my my recent test, I'm not a fan either. We promised we'd never talk about spray cheese again. Ever since the accident. Texas? What What do you think Texas doesn't like? Um, Quiche. They don't like steak cooked well done. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. You need blood in your steak. Mm-hmm. No, no charcoal there. Um, Louisiana's a problem with cookies with raisins. Really? Yeah. Arkansas doesn't like cilantro, probably because it uh, tastes like soap. I don't like cilantro. Neither do I. Uh, Missouri doesn't like the last bite of a hot dog. Is sure that why. a thing? I'm not sure if that's some sort of substandard part of the hot dog so you or like, if it's the fact that it's now gone. You like the first eight bites of a hot dog, but not the last bite. That is a tip that is used for, you know, making sure that you have good manners, that you don't overeat. Just leave a couple of bites left on your plate. There you go. South Dakota, not a big fan of expensive cheese plates. Okay, good. Huh. Iowa doesn't like quinoa. Right? I'm okay with quinoa. Indiana, not a big fan of biting string cheese. Oh. <sighs> you got to peel that sucker. Yeah. Unless you're in a hurry. <laughs> w- Wisconsin does not like cold pizza. 
Hmm. But what do you have for breakfast? Not sure. Wow. Um, now you have to look at the map here. I'm confused. What's that one? Michigan. Is that Michigan? Isn't it? Or is, or is Hold on, which one are you pointing to? That one. Isn't uh, Michigan? Michigan. Isn't Michigan the one that kind of looks like a mitt, mitten? Hold on, let me see that again. <laughs> That's Minnesota. Is that Minnesota? I think. This one here? I think, no, the one on the left is Oh, this it? one. They don't, Minnesota like doesn't like a, beans. Yeah. We need a geography lesson. I think it's here. Wisconsin is not a fan of Lunchables. Wisconsin, yeah. They're not a fan of Lunchables. And, and cold pizza is... Michigan. Michigan. Well, I mean, you think about it. Chicago deep dish, right? Oh, I love... They love their pizza, so they're not going to like it cold. That's interesting. What was California's? California. What, get, I mean, what would a California not like? They've tried everything. Chick-fil-A. Oh, <gasps> what? They're not a fan Blasphemy. of Chick-fil-A. me. Okay. Boy, we've covered the country. And uh, Colorado doesn't like flaming hot Cheetos. Good. Stay away from them then, Colorado. <laughs> Good stuff. See what you learn on the show? This is the Matt Townsend Show. More next hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show along with Jeff Simpson and Terry South. The gang's all here. We're locked and loaded, and you're listening to BYU Radio. One of the things we try to do on this program is give you the latest, greatest information that you need to make it through life. Today, no exception, we will be talking about parenting, and sometimes the best parenting is just to ignore it. Just ignore certain things. Your kids? Mm-hmm. Really? Not, uh, like, ignore certain behaviors that they're doing? Oh, okay. Like when they're when they're when they're maybe not doing what you need them to do, you could go harp on it and be mad about it and keep pushing on it. Or sometimes it's healthier to just selectively look the other way. Hmm. And it actually can decrease behavioral problems. The more you emphasize certain problems and issues, the more those might empower the child to continue to how, do those. How issues. selectively? We will talk about how you figure out when you should jump on it and when you should just ignore it. I do ignore my girls when they tattle on each other, but they're, you know, oh, so-and-so pinched me, but they're fine. They walk in. They're not crying or upset. They just want me to know. I just say, okay, go back to bed. Thanks for the update. That's what I always say. I always say, yeah, can you type that up and and we'll file it tomorrow? And then they're they're like, never mind. (laughs) Where's mom? <laughs> then they always ask for their mother. I don't know why that is. I always just say we had to check with mom. Really? Unlike everything. Well, mom must not like that. No, it actually diffuses it so that uh, I don't get the reaction for saying no. Yeah. Right? And so he, he basically gets a no, but he doesn't, you know, yeah. I don't get the emotional reaction. And then when it's in the middle of the day and I said, well, just need to talk to your mom, he just sort of it moves on because it's not important. No, it's see, important that's, right but there. he knows what that means. Hopefully. That's the passive no. It's better because then I don't get the crying and the I emotions. always say, you know what? Let me think about that. And when I say that, they're like, okay, so that's a no. And then I'm like, yeah. They're like, why didn't you just say that? Mm, I didn't want you to get mad. <laughs> well, I'm mad. Yeah. Yeah, but you're <sighs> not on the floor crying. So it's hard to parent, you. isn't it? It's hard. 
But her approach, I think if you take out the selectively part, mm-hmm. I think that might be the better approach. No, 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 no. Oh. You, you can't just ignore your kids permanently. Oh, come on. Because then, you, then you'll have all of the other problems that happen when parents ignore their kids. Well, I thought she was explaining something like a new finding. Like maybe no. that is something that, that we've just sort of carried through time and it's not actually true. That you no. can't ignore your kids and they'll turn into upstanding citizens. No. Wow. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, they're yours, so you've got to do something with them. Otherwise, when you're at the store, someone else is going to get mad at you for not doing something with your children. You're that parent. You're that parent. You become that parent. So we'll get into all of that. And uh, Jeff's taking copious notes right now. Did you notice that? Hmm. He gets all quiet, and then he just gets because he's taking notes. It's incredible. (laughs) Apparently, he's asleep (laughs) as well. Well. Yeah. By the way, uh, interesting day today. If you're a fan of the show and you've heard us interview Mo Pluto, the great uh, dwarf planet. Not so great. Yeah. The, used to be great. Yeah. Used to be great. Now has been demoted. Uh, today is officially Pluto Demoted Day. Pluto's lost its former status as a planet uh, from its discovery in 1930 to its, to its demotion in, 19, in 2006. It had a good run. It had about a 76-year run as a planet right. until it was demoted for bad grades. See, I think that shows an, an ounce of class on your half to – on your uh, – for and, you to not bring this up when yeah. you interviewed him the other day. And I appreciate that you're, that you're actually weighing my class. Yeah. Because right? it was, was an, an ounce, ounce of class. Just an ounce. Yeah. I was trying to be very classy because I could have brought up – with Mo that it had been demoted. It was that we were about to celebrate its demotion day. But I didn't bring it up. I just brought up that he he's a dwarf planet demoted. So I don't know how agreeable he w- would have been if you tried to talk to him mad. again today he was after mad. Well, that. So. Because he just lost that fight. Right. He was in that, that battle. W- that would have been an ounce of an interview had you brought it up during the interview. He would have hung up for yeah. sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, the Battle Royale, I think they were calling it. No, the Battle from the Dark Hole. Mayhem in the Milky Way. Mayhem in the Milky Way. Good fight. Good fight. Uh, Almost up there with Mayweather and uh, O'Connor. What's his name? McConnor? McConnor, I think. No. What about Foreman and Ali? Um, (laughs) Foreman and Ali, yeah, that was great. Back in the day, yeah, if we're, we're going to go backwards like that. You know, I think it was meant to be for George Foreman to have these grills. Oh, yeah. And maybe there was a marketer watching the fight where he was retiring because when he lost the fight that, that ended his career, he went up to reporters and was like, oh, I feel great. I want to go home and have a bucket of fried chicken. So Did he say that? He did. He was so hungry. maybe somebody was watching and they said, I think that guy can grill. That, Yeah. That's probably it. <laughs> and then, and then he, he then the Foreman Grill was born, and that's made him bazillions of dollars. And, probably much more than he ever got fighting. And I like to think more that it's it's drained billions of gallons of fat off of uh, food that we eat. So I look, I like it that way. I like to think of it that way. It's Mayweather McGregor. McGregor may fight Saturday. That's going to be. This is the guy that can box versus the guy who's the um, mixed martial arts, like the grappler guy. Yeah. So, 
One guy's used to maybe throwing a couple punches and then tackling you and then putting some sort of hold on you till you give up, and this isn't that type of fight. I don't this know. is a stand and box. How do you stand and box when every instinct in you has taught you, okay, go for the choke hold? Right? It's like go fighting the with arm one bar. hand behind your back. Might as well be boxing one handed. Yeah. So you're 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 fighting what people feel is one of the pound for pound best fighters. But he's he's, of our li- but our he's our like he, he's old, right? And uh, you know hasn't fought in two or three years, right? Mayweather, right? And yet McGregor, if 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 we could take the gloves off, McGregor would this would be easy, wouldn't it? I'm assuming this would be fairly easy for him to if if they could just a, mix martial arts. Oh it. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But boy, that's we, a lot of control to not because you know these guys eventually like if. If you tied their hands, they'll just gnaw your neck off. They'll just chew it off. I've seen that. So this could be the biggest fraud perpetrated on American society. Tens of billions of dollars perpetrated. And by the way, did you hear about apparently everybody bets on these things? I'm not a better. I'm not a gambler. Mm-hmm. But everyone's betting. But they're all betting for McGregor. Yeah. this uh, They're taking the under or as, whatever. As I saw that the uh, the gambling industry is quite exposed on this one. Like they're completely upside they down. They could lose so much money. They're hoping that this week more people start actually voting for the winner so this thing can balance out. So right. not that we're uh, not that we're into that. Into no. That. No. It's just an interesting story. Yeah. We've got, we've got so much to cover. Um, we'll be getting into uh, a Florida man who um, who injured somebody. With taking a selfie, hmm. dangerous. Selfies are dangerous. We've talked about that on the show before. I don't um, know if anybody was injured, but he there's some jail time involved. Oh, uh-huh. well, that's what, see, that's why it's your news. Um, plus, we we have a new trailer coming out that I think is being launched on our show. Yeah, and it involves Sam Jackson, Samuel L. Yes. The The Samuel Samuel L. L. Jackson. And usually when we do a story about him, it involves snakes somewhere. It's always a snake story. However, this movie's different. How? It's not your shoot-em-up, kill-the-snakes action movie. Huh. It's actually kind of a tearjerker. Oh, really? Oh. And there's there's a little bit of Oscar buzz surrounding this film. Really? Yeah. I love a good... You know, like sad story that involves a snake. Bring your tissues. Mm, I hate to cry. You're going to need it. I just have such a warm spot in my heart for snakes. Okay, so we'll get to all of that straight ahead. But uh, first to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country we should be paying attention to? Several U.S. diplomats in Havana have been diagnosed with serious conditions, including traumatic brain injury after they were attacked with a sonic device, CBS News reports Wednesday. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. U.S. officials are investigating the attack, which began mid-November 2016 and stopped earlier this year. More than 10 U.S. diplomats and family members reported requiring treatment after months of harassing acoustic attacks. At least two diplomats suffered permanent hearing loss and had to return to the U.S. One of them has a traumatic brain injury no. from the sonic device. Way. Yeah. We hear about these sonic devices are like the future of warfare. Mm. but So somebody has a traumatic brain injury, a TBI, 
because of this. They're just in the the consulate there in Havana. And, Unbelievable. Yeah. Sad. Other news, ESPN pulling a college football announcer named Robert Lee from covering a Virginia game this season because his name is only one initial away from being shared with the Confederate general. So you can't so not he's not even probably related to Robert E. Lee, but he's an Asian American. Bobby Lee. <laughs> Bob Robert Lee. Can't they just call him by like Bobby or Bob Lee? While Lee's name might have raised eyebrows in Charlottesville where violence erupted over protests concerning the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee, the announcer is Asian American and shares no heritage with the former military leader. That is ESP, weird. ESPN said in a statement the decision was made to uh, the reasonable possibility that because of Lee's name he would be subject to memes and jokes and who knows what else. Well, Robert Lee says his parents named him after Robert Redford. Just well, Robert, and, and he's a Lee, like Bruce Lee. Right. I mean, are you kidding me? This, wow, yeah. we're that sensitive. So ESPN is getting a lot of <laughs> hits from all sides now because they've, it seems like they've overstepped to be yeah. really cautious for no reason. I'm sure nobody noticed it until they said that, until they brought it up. Right. Yeah, I probably. honestly don't think anybody would have noticed. No, especially if you look at him. He's Asian American. He doesn't look like a Confederate general And his name's Robert Lee. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And now they've highlighted a big light on it, a big spotlight on it, and now everyone's like, what's up with the ESPN? He has been reassigned to a different game. And I guarantee they're doing memes right now Probably. all about Robert E. Lee. I, yeah, they, 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 walk, they, they tried to avoid it, and it's yeah. happening. See so, what happens? About a third of U.S. adults say they don't get enough sleep. Now there's news of the link between the quality of sleep and the risk of dementia. A new study takes a look at the rapid eye movement sleep, or REM sleep, or the moment when a person dreams. There are four stages in the sleep cycle, and stage one sleep is very light, and it progresses to deep sleep in stage three. After that, there's REM sleep, which usually occurs four to five times over an eight hours as you sleep. In the study, as the amount of REM sleep declined, the risk of dementia increased. There is increasing evidence that toxins accumulate in the brain during the day, but are cleaned out when we're asleep, sort of like garbage collecting a collecting function of yeah, the brain. Yeah. These include things like amyloid, which is linked to Alzheimer's. It's not clear exactly when during the sleep cycle this occurs, but they're showing signs that if you don't dream, it could lead to dementia. We were just saying Great. that neither of us get enough sleep. Yeah. And I don't yeah. dream, so. Well, see, that explains it. And we've got all these toxins building up. You know what we need is a brain massage. Or a extended you know, time off to get a normal sleep cycle. That's called weekends. Yeah, I know. Well, I you, said extended, not like yeah, two days. That's a good point. We go on vacation about the third day. My wife's like, hey, my husband's back. Look at that. That's that guy I'm Isn't married. it weird? And, yeah. you, and then you're all nice and cordial yeah. and yeah. you love to... <laughs> Not so divisive and trying to make fights. And this one's for you, Matt. I know you're excited. Yes. Taylor Swift announced her sixth studio album, Reputation, in a series of Instagram posts on Wednesday. Excellent. The album will be out November 10th. The first single for the album will be released tonight. Where? On the intranets. Really? The interweb? The interwebs somewhere. Oh, good. It's the follow-up for her 2014 album, 1989 which sold nearly 1.3 million copies the first week. Wow. So she's she she's, says she's been taking notes of the haters and will uh, respond accordingly. Is this it? Oh, no. And, of course, she just finished her court case. So yeah, that, and she won. That'll be part of it. Yeah. She's really motivated. Take that. So, she's uh, a talent. She's very talented. You're always talking about Tay-Tay, so. Yeah, I can't. Can't get enough of Tay-Tay. She <laughs> Swift doggy dog. 
One of our producers, Lauren. Yeah. We have like five of them. Um, Lauren number one. Five Laurens. Uh, she went to actually went to Colorado and sat in the courtroom during one of the court She made days. it in? So Yeah, she made it in. Wow. Hold on. Why would she do that? Because Taylor Swift's right there. Yeah, in a courtroom. Yeah, she sat down in the courtroom behind Taylor Swift and watched her court case. It was the day after, I think, she I, testified. Yeah. So It's always so disappointing when you are actually in the presence of a famous person. During their trial. Well, especially during a trial, but they're just they're not as big as they are on screen. No, they seem you know? smaller. She said Taylor just looked wonderful. <laughs> just it was it was oh, just brilliant I'm to be sure. in her presence. To share the air, if you will. Oh. I wish I had known. Her husband went with her. Really? What kind of dedication is that? I don't I wouldn't believe he's like as big a Taylor Swift fan. This video is crazy, by the way. Well I, I would have expressed if my wife had that kind of a uh a desire to go to that kind of a, a case, that kind of experience, I would have encouraged her to t- call her sister. Just call your sister and have fun. You know, your sister would love this. <laughs> I don't want to be a naysayer, but your sister would really love getting to the court with uh, Taylor Swift. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I thought she was joking, our producer, but then she shows up in Colorado. Well, that's why we've got three or four Lawrence. She didn't take a microphone, though, so she wasn't working. Darn it. We've got to get them to focus on that. Okay, let's uh, let's get to the big other reveal. Um, a, a wonderful uh, story that Jeff's bringing us in the empty news segment about Samuel Samuel L. Jackson and a new movie coming out. Yeah, and like I said, he's kind of playing a, against type, meaning usually he's in all these action films where he's trying to kill these snakes. Yeah, he's always trying and to he's kill always, people. He's always he's, he's always had it. Yeah, he's had it with these snakes on the plane or the train. Yeah, those ever-loving snakes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let me give you the story first. Okay. A man was arrested on federal smuggling charges after customs officers intercepted a shipment with three live king cobras hidden inside potato chip canisters. What? So they were being mailed to his California home. And uh, the the 34-year-old man was scheduled to be arraigned uh, in Los Angeles on a charge of illegally importing merchandise. It wasn't clear if he had an attorney who could comment on the allegations. The three King Cobra snakes, each about two feet long, were found in March when Customs and Border Border Protection officers inspected a package that was mailed from Hong Kong. There were also three albino Chinese soft-shelled turtles in the package, <laughs> and uh, federal agents removed the cobras but, were, but delivered the turtles to Franco's home in Monterey Park. The agents later served a search warrant there and found tanks with a live baby Moralette's crocodile, uh. alligator snapping turtles. I didn't even know those existed. No, I didn't either. A common snapping turtle and five diamondback terrapins. Wow. That was a that was a busy little you know house busy, yeah. busy little reptile keeper. So I I believe in the film Samuel L Jackson plays the attorney that takes on the case. Mm, okay, cool. But it the, instead of So is it you a know, courtroom drama? It sounds like it's a courtroom drama. So instead of people, you know, cheering in the audience because of the action, I think he's going to have people cheering and crying. Because of the drama, oh, and it beautiful. really pulls at your yeah. heartstrings. I love it. Ten years ago, Frederico Blanco left his native Mexico in search of a dream. 
Now he's hoping his beloved King Cobras can join him in the country he's come to love. But when the Department of the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services fails him, he takes measures into his own hands and is arrested for smuggling the snakes into the country in a can of potato chips. Now, only one man can help him. Please, please, you must help me. They took my babies. I wanted to bring them in legally, but I didn't have the money. I need the best lawyer you can get. Please, get Carver for me. James T. Carver is an attorney who's at the top of his game. Don't mention him, Mr. President. Happy to help. And don't forget our 12 o'clock tea time. Bye-bye now. Oh, Carver, are you busy? Always. But come in anyway. What can I do for you, Johnson? I think you should take a look at this case. Are you interested? Come on now, Johnson. Babies being deported? You know I don't do these types of cases. Uh, did I mention his babies are actually King Cobras? Did you say King Cobras? Cancel my afternoon appointments. I'm taking his case. Pro bono! He's putting the whole reptile immigration system on trial. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you never really understand the snake until you consider things from his point of view. Until you climb into his skin and slither around in it. This man knows what he did was wrong, but his hand was forced into it. I have had it with these reptile immigration officers making it too hard for law-abiding snakes to come into this country legally. In the name of all that is decent, ladies and gentlemen, do your duty. You're out of order, counselor. This whole immigration process is out of order. Samuel L. Jackson in Snakes in a Courtroom. You know, when you love your kids so much, you you a lot of times just you want to help them. You want to help them grow up as fast as you can. You don't, you know, you then you regret having them grow up so fast. But it's hard. It's hard to be a parent. It's especially hard to be a parent when all of a sudden your children are behaving in a way that you're you're not quite pleased with. So how do you know? When to, uh, you know, when to when to attack and, and, and correct and, and, and help the child learn um, and fix an, an issue and when to ignore it. Here to help us to understand this uh, is Dr. Catherine Perlman. The book is called Ignore It, How Selectively Looking the Other Way Can Decrease Behavioral Problems and Increase Parenting Satisfaction. Catherine, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. How, what? First of all, I mean, you. I'm sure you see this a lot in your uh, coaching business, in your counseling business. What What is going on with parents? Because our, our, it seems like we we're kind of in this weird space where we're over parenting sometime and we're under parenting other times, and one might beget the other, and the other begets the other. So, how do we find the happy space, that happy medium? You know, parenting is so different now than it was even 20 years ago. With Often with two parents working or more single-parent households, kids have way more activities in the afternoon, and parents are expected to be on parenting every second of the day, even if they're working. You know, we're expected to be at school more often. We're expected to go to every game, and if we have multiple children, that becomes challenging. 
Um, and so really the expectation is that we supply endless amounts of attention on our children. And our kids have grown up to expect this. They're also on their uh, you know, devices and on social media. And all this is creating this system of, you know, watch me and give me attention. And if kids don't get attention in the way that they want, unfortunately, they'll get it in undesirable ways. And so that's kind of how we got here. So if we ended up creating, I guess, a monster because they not a monster, but they naturally want our attention. And if we give them a lot of attention, they're going to maybe want more of it. So is is some of this some of this is uh, is not reinforcing negative patterns and instead reinforcing positive patterns? Yeah, I mean, we are spending so much time disciplining, saying, no, don't do that, sit straight, do your homework, quiet down, you know, all these little (laughs) corrections all day long, because we also have expectations that our kids are going to be perfect at a young age. They got to grow up. They got to be successful. Um, So we're like nitpicking and and correcting all these little things. And we're kind of ignoring all of the good behaviors that the kids are doing. We take it for granted. We expect that behavior and we're not reinforcing it. And the trouble is the behaviors that get reinforced that have a reward or some benefit are going to be repeated. And the behaviors that nobody cares about are going to like kind of wean away. And I always tell parents, like, imagine you worked so hard for like a week on a project at work and you hand it in and nobody cared. Nobody said anything. Nobody said, great job. Even as adults, we need some kind of validation that, you know, we're doing the right thing. And so we are forgetting to do that for our kids. And unfortunately, we're reinforcing all of their negative behaviors. And those are the ones that keep repeating themselves. Mm. What? Uh, and so where do we begin when you when you sit down with a with a couple um, where I mean, I've had couples come to me bringing their child in like, yeah, OK, we've tried to fix this one. You, you need to fix them. And a lot of times I'd rather just meet with the parents and give them advice and, and maybe help them create a plan. Where should we begin to to fix this? Yeah, so usually when parents contact me, I ask them what's the worst time of day, and I visit them in the home when they're having the problem. Um, And so I can see in two seconds what the dynamic is. And I agree with you. Very often what I need to change is the parents, the way the parent is behaving, the way the parent is reacting. Um, Because kids are very smart. They know what to do to get what they want. And if what they're doing is not getting what they want, they'll stop bothering with it. Um, And so I really teach parents how to change the way they manage some of the annoying behaviors of kids, all of the whining, complaining, and tantruming, and then kids are very perceptive and they see, gee, if I throw a tantrum and I don't get that cookie, then I might as well not bother. Or if whining, complaining doesn't get me out of eating my carrots, then there's really no point in it. <laughs> so, I mean, that that's the problem is it's almost like they have, the child has everything to win and gain by just whining and continually whining. And because they know you're going to give in, you, you you're just weak. You're a weak, exhausted parent, so I'm going yeah. to slowly beat you down. Um, so, what are the what are the what are the actual behaviors that we shouldn't enable? That and 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 how do we not enable them? So, anything annoying, parents should just ignore. Um, any kind of whining, complaining, tantruming, negotiating is a big no-no. And then, anytime kids are trying to push our buttons, or you know, teenagers being disrespectful or cursing. Um, you know, that kind of thing, all of that we should ignore because there's no benefit to responding to it. Um, if it doesn't get a rise out of us, a teenager won't provoke us. You know, they'll quickly give it up. Um, so those are the kind of things you have to ignore. And what happens is as soon as the kid starts doing it, so they say, can I have a cookie? And you say no, and they ask why. Well, you say because we're about to have dinner. The, now the discussion is over. You've asked, you know, they've asked, you've answered, and you've given a reason. There's nothing more to say. 
but why? And the kid will continue on with it. Now you just start to ignore. Mm. But you're really listening. You're not actually yeah. ignoring your kid. You're just kind of averting your eyes. You're not giving any kind of benefit for that behavior. And when the kid stops, immediately you're going to reengage. You're not going to talk about the cookie, but you're going to talk about dinner. You're going to talk about what we're going to watch after, um, you know, something exciting for the weekend. Whatever it is, you're going to reengage your kid and move on right away. So we want to just... Ignore, listen, and reengage as quickly as possible. Oh, it's interesting. I, I, it's almost like um, sunlight, right? So the minute they're the minute they're doing the annoying behavior, quit giving it sunlight, and you're saying it'll pretty much go away. But the minute they're back to normal and adjusted and moving on, then give them light again. Exactly. And sometimes parents are still grumpy because their kids are driving them crazy. That's too bad. You've got to re-engage them right away because then the cycle just continues. You know, it, the kids can see you're not over it. You know, they can look, read your face and, you know, see you're not over it. So you really have to move on and then the kids will. Now is because I can imagine, for example, let's say your, your child is uh, using language you don't like and language that's inappropriate. Uh, we, we want to correct it at some point, but you're saying maybe don't correct it when they're trying to gain advantage. Yeah, I mean, we want to do something to improve their behavior. Like, doing nothing seems wrong to us. Like, right, it right. It doesn't make any sense. We want to do something. But the thing is, the thing we're doing is just reinforcing the behavior. So unless the kid is, you know, a young kid and he's being physical and hitting his brother or throwing toys and somebody gets hurt, then we're going to do a timeout. But otherwise... For all the behaviors that I mentioned, we're just going to ignore it. And parents really struggle with this concept. They're like, I yeah. can't do nothing. The kid will think I'm okay with it. The kid already knows you're not okay with it. Yeah, you've already 100%. taught them that. Right. Yeah, we, they know that it's not okay. And anytime we lecture them about it, it's just words. They, it means nothing to them. They're going to try it again next time because sometimes it's effective. And even if they don't get a cookie or they don't get out of the carrots, sometimes they get a lot of attention. And even negative attention is rewarding. So parents, once they kind of get the concept, then they're like, okay, I understand that I can't do something even though I want to. Um, because sometimes it's almost just like scratching an itch. It's like we just want to tell them so badly what they're doing wrong. Like we have to instruct them, but that's silly. They already know. And it's just providing more attention. So we've got to just leave it alone. That's interesting. And it's, I guess this is really having to overcome this reactive mindset that a parent might have that to ignore it is to almost condone it, that I'm okay with you being this way. But you're saying more. It's just about typical positive versus negative reinforcement. Don't empower their negative behavior with any attention or time. Yeah, they already know that, that you're not okay with it. I mean, they, the, your teenager knows that cursing's not cool. They know when you're, you know, they're mouthing off to you or being disrespectful that you know that that's not okay. But when it doesn't get a reaction, it's just there's no point to it. Um, and so they're not going to do it. And you know what's so interesting? Parents actually feel so much better when they ignore. Like, even if the behavior doesn't immediately um, like go away completely or in the middle of a power struggle and they start ignoring they immediately feel like a release, like they don't have to actually do something that sometimes they can look the other way and the behavior will go away. You know, it's just like we have this need to be parenting and actively improving our kids all the time. And that's exhausting. And so giving parents the freedom to say, like, sometimes I don't actually have to lecture my kid is very freeing. Hmm. And I guess that that probably is freeing. And, And one of the keys seems like, but when they're doing something right and something positive, then you do need to 
be paying attention and stroking and loving and being there, right? Because they need you need to have the you need to have the positive affirmation and validation if you're going to try to ignore the other. Definitely, and sometimes parents forget about that. They think like, why do I have to reward my kid for doing what he's got to be doing? Well, <laughs> because life is full of naturally occurring rewards, and that's what helps us motivate to do stuff. You know, again, like I do a good job at work, I get a raise. That's a reward. Um, someone gives me, like, says, oh, wow, you did a really great job on this project, or that's a delicious meal you made. All of those are rewards that make me feel more encouraged to keep doing the same things. And so we've got to do that with our kids. Like, they need it even more than adults do. So really, we have to think about praising them more often. And uh, it could be small gestures, like a high five. We can say, great job. We can give a pat on the back. Um, We can say, thank you. Like, thank you for emptying the dishwasher. Like, we should recognize that they've done something they're supposed to do and say thank you um, instead of focusing so much on all of their negative behaviors. Hmm. That's great. And really, it, it, there is it's some, it's some freedom for a parent that is so tired of nagging and constantly having to, to be on the negative side. There's, there's, but then it is overcoming, isn't it, that fear that I'm a bad parent because I'm not getting on this. And I guess the social pressure. I mean, if all of a sudden your child's doing something or misbehaving in a store and you're not seemingly responding, then there might be social pressure to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's very hard in public. Um, we see people giving us the dirty looks and we see people whispering about us and our kids. And a lot of times in public we do things we wouldn't normally do or we don't think we should do. But because people are watching us, we give in. So the kid starts to throw a tantrum and target, we quickly give them what they want. Um, yeah. Or we give them a compromise. We think, okay, I won't give them that because that would be bad, but I'll give them something else. And the kid's basically behavior is still rewarded because they don't care what they get as long as they get something. Um, so we have to be willing as parents to say, like, I'm the one raising this kid. I'm the one that's going to have to deal with this bad behavior later on. I'm not going to reinforce just because other people are looking. And I'd like to say something to all those people looking on, like, instead of judging, have a heart. Like, we've all been there. We've mm. all been that parent whose kid is acting up at the worst possible moment, you know, at the concert or the play or in the doctor's office or at the airport. And it's embarrassing. Like, have a heart. Like, give that person a knowing look like, I've been there, you know. Ask them if there's anything you can do, like hold another kid or, you know, help them hold a drink or just be like, yep, I'm with you, you know. And, and, and then the parent will feel like confidence to say like, okay, I can do this without giving in to people, you know, staring at me. That is such a great point. And um, it's almost like the kid knows you're in this weird social setting where they have more power because you're, you know, they're going to throw a tantrum and, and you've got this weird, pleasing need to not have anybody after you. Uh, let's take a break, Catherine, and continue this discussion um, in just a few moments. We, we, uh, we'll, when we come back, we're going to get some, some real-life examples. We'll have Catherine run some, through scenarios. What happens when your child comes home um, and, you know, is throwing a fit or beating up their little brother? What do we do? How do we intervene? Interesting lessons about uh, how to ignore it. The book, Ignore It, How Selectively Looking the Other Way Can Decrease Behavior Problems and Increase Parenting Satisfaction Straight Ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger right here on BYU Radio. We are talking about how to uh, help 
change behavior, manage behavior better with your children, um, when and how to nip some bad behavior in the bud. Who better to help us than a, a professional that's uh, written the book on it? Ignore it is the name of the book. How selectively looking the other way can decrease behavioral problems and increase parenting satisfaction. Dr. Catherine Perlman is her name. You can go to the website, thefamilycoach.com, and uh, learn more about her work, her writing, her speaking. Catherine, again, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. At what point can you not ignore it? Is there a point where you're like, okay, intervention time? Well, so all of the behaviors I mentioned, you know, nagging, whining, complaining, tantruming, negotiating, all those continue to be ignoring them, even if it's 40 minutes later. Um, but what we can't ignore are our kids when they're in real pain or they're having a real problem. Um, and so there is a difference between kind of crocodile tears and real tears. And so we have to be sensitive. When our kids are really upset about something, we've got to address that. Um, we can't ignore kids that are being dangerous. Like I've seen kids in the supermarket, like tearing things off the shelves and like 4,000 apples rolling off, you know, the display, you know, that's not okay. Um, we can't, um, ignore it when someone else is getting hurt. So uh, our kids' bad behavior is impacting someone else's kid. We can't ignore that. Um, and the last thing we can't ignore is someone who wants to be ignored. So a teenager who's obnoxious on purpose so that they don't have to have dinner with you or they don't have to go to family night or they don't have to go to a party um, that we don't want to ignore. Hmm. And you don't want, because that's the ploy. That's the ploy. That's the play. They know it hurts you more than it hurts them, but that's not healthy. So I guess part of this is then uh, we ignore them. Um, we're not going to, when they're negotiating, what like at the store, give me mom, I want this. I want this. I want this. I want this. You ignore that behavior. You ignore it. You just keep shopping, go about your work. Even if it's humiliating, right? So even if they're starting to throw a louder tantrum, you're saying just ignore it and keep shopping. Right. Well, there's two things. One is when it gets louder, it means it's working. Yeah. They are actually getting the message, but they're not. They're confused because normally that works, but this time it's not working. So they'll just try harder. Um, that's a good sign. And parents sometimes get flustered and give in in that moment. But that's actually they should see that as like, oh wow, I should keep going because they're getting the message. Hmm. Um, and the other thing is parents should really start ignoring at home. You know, do it in a comfortable place. Let your kids get used to this. When, when, you know, when you start to turn your back or you start ignoring them, they know it's over. So do it at home when they get the message first, and then you can go ahead and do it um, when you're out in public. And the other thing is there's certain things that we can do to prevent a lot of meltdowns. Like I've, I've seen people shopping at the worst time for their kids when it's either nap time or it's lunchtime. Um, or it's super crowded in the store. Now, obviously, you can't engineer everything, but there's things that you can do. You know, having your kids eat on a schedule, um, having them sleep on a schedule, and getting enough sleep on a consistent basis, you know, can prevent a lot of meltdowns. In restaurants, you know, find a restaurant that's appropriate for their age, bring toys. You know, there's just like a lot of things that can preempt a meltdown, but once you've got it, you've got to, you know, work with what you, what's going on. That's so true. And um, you, you say not to get into negotiating with the kids. Some parents I could see would say, I'm not negotiating. I'm teaching my children to relate with others and negotiate for what they want. But you're saying if, if a child's like, give me this, I want this, I want this, I want this, and you keep negotiating and trying to tell them why and explain, it's, I guess it, it won't work because they're just playing you. Well, the thing is, the kids don't care what they get as long as they get something. So they just, it's like buying a car. They start low and then they, they come up, you know? And yeah. so it's like 
Anytime you negotiate, you're basically teaching your kids that everything is negotiable. I had a parent call me the other day, and he was so thrilled with himself. His toddler wanted more, like another TV show, and he said, no, 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 no. And then in the end, he gave the kid two YouTube videos. So, but he was so proud of himself, he didn't get to watch the actual show he wanted. <laughs> and I'm like, he doesn't care what he watches. He just got two more minutes, even, of television time, that's a win, basically. And plus, you probably spent five minutes negotiating. So all of that means a later bedtime and or just a lot more attention, and the kid won. Um, so not everything is negotiable in life. And so we should just, if you want to give your kids some extra minutes, then give them extra minutes. Don't say no and then say yes. If they don't have to eat all their carrots, and tell them they don't have to eat all their carrots. But if you say they have to eat all their carrots, then they've got to eat all their carrots. You cannot negotiate. And sometimes I say no to something, and I, and I think to myself, oh, that was silly, actually. I could have said yes. Well, that should just be like a reminder for me for next time. I can't overrule myself now because, again, I'm just going to increase that whining behavior. Boy, we have to have more discipline, it seems like, as a parent then. You really got to gotta stick to, your, to stick to the game plan. It's us. We're the problem. Always. Totally. It's always us. You know, us. the thing is that you look at kids and they're in school, and, you know, of course I work with some – families where the kids have some real behavioral issues and some real uh, mental health or emotional problems. And, and I'm not talking about those kids. I'm talking about your everyday kid. And at school, those kids follow all the rules. They don't negotiate with their teachers. They don't say, do I have to do all 10 problems for homework or can I just do eight? I mean, that would be ridiculous. But somehow that's acceptable at home. And our kids can manage their behavior at school. They can manage their behavior at home, too. That's so true. And what a better place than at home to learn it. Um, what about – give us an example about dinner time. Um, if the child is not wanting to eat what you've prepared. Yeah. So dinner time is just rife with problems because we as parents care so deeply what our kids eat. Like we, there's, there's, there are a few things we care more about than getting them to eat a nutritious meal, having a balanced diet. And the thing is, the kids know it. So just like you were saying, we're vulnerable when we're out in public. The kids know it. It's the same at mealtimes. We cannot make our kids eat, and they know it means so much to us. So it's a power struggle right from the beginning, and the kids want a little bit of control. So I say at mealtimes, just make at least one thing that everybody will eat and then provide a few extra choices so that you hopefully expand their, their diet and they ignore everything else. Don't deal with any kind of negotiating. Eat it or don't eat it. There's, this is dinner. Um, if you're hungry, you'll eat more for breakfast. But this is something that I know you eat, and so you, you can eat it. And I would not bother forcing kids to eat you know, things. I would focus more on family time at meals. I mean, mealtime is really one of the best times of day for parents to catch up with their kids. Mm. Every, you know, usually we put all the screens away and there's no interruptions. We're not getting phone calls. We're not watching television. And so by negotiating and dealing with all of this, please eat this. Okay, fine. I'll make you something else. You know, all of this stuff is taking away from the best part of mealtime. So, you know, just kind of don't deal with any of that. Don't negotiate. Don't deal with any of the whining, complaining. They complain about the meal. Just ignore it. That's great. And then as soon as they're done, get back, you know, engage them in conversation. And um, I, I guess then if the rest of the night they're begging and begging and demanding some food, other food, you just ignore it. Totally. There's nothing better than being hungry after dinner to remind you tomorrow at dinner to eat your dinner. That's right. You will never forget that. And, and instead, um, yeah, how many times – has a parent sat there and negotiated? I mean, everybody has a story of a parent probably 
um, you know, browbeating you to eat your pe- your beans or your peas, and you sit there for thirty minutes after. That's time wasted. Well, also the thing is, I think that's how a lot of parents grew up. Yeah, and we hated it. And so we can't do that to our own kids. Like, I cannot make my kids drink milk. I mean, I suffered through that my whole childhood. So we've kind of swung too far in the other direction. We're, like, providing endless amount of choices and, okay, fine, don't eat this. And so our kids have learned really quickly that, you know, they can get out of a lot of unpleasantness at, at mealtime. But you're right, then we're just wasting our, our opportunity to have quality time with our kids. And so, again, if whining about their steak doesn't get them something else, then they're either going to eat the steak or they won't. But the next day they're going to be hungry and they're going to eat. So I, and then what happens is a lot of times parents don't do anything at dinner. They're like, fine, you can't eat anything else, be hungry. And then an hour later they're giving a snack, even a healthy <laughs> snack. And I'm like, you just undermine dinner. Like now why would they eat their dinner? They know that there's a snack later. It's so true. And it's why do we do it? I mean, there must be a psychology about – Deep down inside, well, they didn't eat any vegetables, so I'm going to sneak a fruit in at 9 o'clock. I think it's more the guilt of we cannot send our kids to bed hungry. We did not do our job as a parent if we don't feed them. Like, feeding our kids is so important. And like I said, I think it's a little bit of a backlash from us having to eat things that we really didn't enjoy or, or growing up with parents who maybe didn't have as much food when they grew up, so they made us eat everything on our plate. Now we're reacting to that, and we're not making our kids eat anything that they don't want, but then we feel so guilty that they're hungry that then we provide an endless supply of snacks, and then we discourage them from actually eating their meal in the first place. Hmm. And, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so then I guess we we did get them some food, but we didn't teach them the lesson of life that there's choices, and you have to you have to adapt and be resilient. Why eat dinner if there's a snack later? Right. (laughs) Just reinforcing that behavior. So true. Give us the one thing, Catherine. We have one uh, minute left. What's the one thing every parent should remember um, when trying to create behavior change with their children, but in a loving way? Yeah. So the one thing that they should go away with is if you should remember that any behavior that's rewarded or has any kind of benefit will be repeated. And so we just want to make sure that we're giving our attention to the good behaviors and leaving uh, off our attention and ignoring all of the negative, unwanted ones. Beautiful. Very simple. Catherine Perlman is her name, Dr. Catherine Perlman. The book, Ignore It, How Selectively Looking the Other Way Can Decrease Behavioral Problems and Increase Parenting Satisfaction. You can find out more at thefamilycoach.com. And uh, really, be careful what you're shining the light on. Whatever you give the energy and the attention to, it will grow. And if the behavior is negative and you keep giving it attention and energy, guess what? It continues to grow. That's one of the universals, it seems like, of parenting, isn't it? We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. You know, if you if you love taking a selfie, then here here's a story uh, out of Florida that uh, that Jeff's going to tell us that you you won't want to miss because honestly, selfies can be dangerous. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you have people that are crossing the street while taking a selfie, mm-hmm. get hit by a car. They, people fall off mountains. They walk right into a fountain at the mall. So all sorts of stuff happens. But uh, hopefully not too many people are shooting a gun while they're taking a selfie. I always, I always put my gun down when I take That's a selfie. That's great advice. Grandma taught me that. Words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. So a Florida man has been sentenced to six years and five months in prison for accidentally shooting a gun while taking a selfie in a restaurant restroom. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. He's yeah. in a public place, yeah. place yeah. of business. Court documents say Sorn was at the restaurant in December when his gun discharged. The bullet went through the mirror and into the adjacent woman's restroom. Oh, Holy cow. wow. See, that brings up. Safety concerns oh, just absolutely. in general because is this are these walls like paper yeah. thin? But it's a restroom. You don't you don't always want to set your gun down. It might you might right, get germs right. on it. So uh, luckily, no injuries were reported. Wow! A security guard approached Sorn as he was leaving, and Sorn reportedly told the guard that it was an accident and that he was just trying to take a selfie. Police <laughs> responded and arrested Sorn. Six years. Yeah. Six years for taking a selfie and accidentally discharging your gun through a wall. And they actually have really good, a really good audio system in that bathroom. So wow. we're able to get some sound. Oh, good. Wow. That was intense. Yeah. Well, we, we wish him the best. Uh, there won't be a lot of selfies in prison. <laughs> so uh, good luck with that. Sorn. Ah, see the lessons we teach? Again, this isn't stuff you're getting on every other station. We do it to help you uh, know that, hey, sure, life is hard, but you're doing a lot better than some other people. Mm. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good day, friends. Top of the morning or bottom of the morning for some of you. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, uh, live from BYU Broadcasting Building at the foot of the Wasatch Front. From within the shadows of <laughs> the everlasting hills. And uh, honored to have you with us today. We, we've well, thank got you. To, uh, I was talking to the people. Oh, okay. Uh, you keep forgetting that we have listeners. Yeah, but you're standing across from me. Yeah. You said you. I just assumed you meant me. Okay. Jeff Simpson uh, on the keyboard. I'll be doing uh, vocals. And, of course, uh, Terry South will be playing the banjo as only Terry can, and bringing us the headlines as well. We've got a lot to cover this hour. We will be talking with a BYU professor about um, food stamps. Some senators and congress, congressmen um, are, are setting up maybe a new way of providing food stamps to people in need. And it's, uh, you know, a lot of people think, Handing people money or handing people a handout doesn't help them as much as other things you could do. So we will be talking about the American dream and um, some ways that uh, maybe just the real data behind what's going on with food stamps in this country. 
and and what it does to your ability to make uh, make a living and, and and create the American dream. We'll get to that. Also, of course, BYU Sports Nation. We like to check in with them before their show begins. We'll find out what what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Their week is winding down, and on Saturday they have a game, their first football game. So it's a big, big deal. Big deal. Thank you. Thank you. We'll get to that. So they're going to be playing in the game. Yeah, they, they actually don't play. Oh, I see. They just – they talk about everything related to sports on BYU campus. So they're very, very excited for this game. Because do you remember for months we have been counting down to this game? Well, they have. Yeah. But we hear about it all the time and now it's here. It's getting – I mean like a day away. They still don't have a starting running back though. Do Apparently you, they're going by committee. Do you? Yeah. That, do you need a running back? Yeah, because if you don't have a starting, if you, if you can't name a quarterback and you're going to we're gonna do it by, it means you don't have a running back. Was that Jamal Williams' position? Mm-hmm. I thought they have. Uh, they have six, but they Canada, no, ca- Canada, yeah, Squally Canada, Squally Canada. But he hasn't like separated himself from the other five. He's probably the leader, but he hasn't separated himself. Oh, Squally Canada. Oh, I thought that was something else. We got separated all the time as kids. Like yeah. I'd be put in one bathroom, my brother would be put in another bathroom. And then we would just talk to each other through the walls. How many bathrooms did your family have? Yeah, we had one. We had three. We had a bucket. Sorry. It was a hard time. So um, <laughs> so much to talk about. It's like, where do we begin? Apparently, um, uh, did you see the, the information about Hillary Clinton in her new book release? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is talking about how Donald Trump was looming behind her during that speech, during that that debate, and she wanted to turn around and say, "Hey, back up, creep! Back up, creep!" But she didn't. That's what she wanted to say, and apparently that'll be in the book. But is that? I mean, can you call somebody you're debating against a creep? She also is the narrator of the audiobook. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, yeah. Right. I. <coughs> It's a long read. It's a long listen. <coughs> Raspy. Back off, creep. Uh, it was funny, though, because uh, Steve Bannon tweeted out that, uh, talk about creeps, we had that one in the White House you were married to. Ba-doom, boom. Something that No, but seriously, folks. Yeah. By the way, uh, speaking of past presidents, I had a moment hmm. of um, pure empathy for the Obamas. How so? They're dropping their daughter off at Harvard. Really? Yeah, oh, they yeah, dropped yeah. her off. I Holy cow. So, but there's... Well, she took her year off. She took her, yeah, her, what do they call that? Break year. Sabbatical. Her, yeah. <laughs> I think to have a sabbatical, you have to have had, had, re, had like been doing research or something before. But she just took her year off that they take. Call the it floating, a gap, yeah, a gap, the gap year? year. There you go. And uh, so then the, the Obamas have to take her to Harvard and drop her off. I mean, so I don't empathize there. I mean, how many people take their kids to Harvard to drop them off? But still, taking them to college. It's a sad day. She's the only one that was dropped off in helicopter. Yeah, and and Secret Service, and we'll have a Secret Service agent down the hall or two. But one of the things that's um, interesting is apparently they did the drop-off during the eclipse. Mm. So as not to draw attention Mm. to them. Because everyone was out eclipsing. Plus, I think it's because everyone would always like – they'd be gathering out by the street and they could have more people carry in stuff. 
Hey, can you guys grab Malia's bed? No, no. Keep your glasses on. Don't look at me directly. We'll be right back. No, they had to turn. There was media report. There was reporters in the area waiting for this. And so they went up to, I think it was Malia. Is that Yeah, Malia. Malia, Yeah. Went up to her and asked her for an interview. And she's like, no. No, we're not doing that. Forget that. And. You know, and then so, somebody reported they came out and they, you know, they looked like they had they were really somber and down. Of course, they're leaving their daughter. At no, but I've done that. Then you get in the car, and when you're driving away, you're like, yes, yes, one down, Woo! one to go. <laughs> so exciting! <laughs> this is, is so from experience. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. It's great. I love having our kids back to school. There, it's almost. They're reverent again. They they also they all it's they're somber and they all realize that, yeah, this is life is hard now. Seriously, like last night they just sat around in our family room just looking at each other like, wow, it's hard. Life is so rough. What? what yeah, school. They've, they've been at it one day. I asked, "What'd you got? What'd you do at school today?" Well, we just checked in, talked. What did you do in your second period? We just checked in and then we talked. They gave us the syllabus and just sat there. Just checked in and talked. First day of school. My kid, he's in his fourth day of school today. He asked yesterday if he'd get a new teacher. Yeah. So that's a good start to the year. Oh, so he's already looking to a new teacher. He goes, can I go to the other first grade class? I'm like, no. (laughs) Why? He goes, well, she keeps telling us to be quiet. And I go, are you noisy? Well, yeah. Well, then be quiet. Aren't kids cute? My three-year-old is super sad because her five-year-old sister is going to kindergarten, whereas she's going to preschool. She's sad that she doesn't get to go to the same class as her big sister. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, it's sad. It's sad. It's beautiful and sad. Oh, I see what you mean. (sighs) Kids are growing up. So we'll get to all of that. We've got uh, so much to cover. A hero story as well, as we are known to do, plus empty news. Empty Matt Townsend news. It always sounds like it has nothing in it, but it's loaded with good stuff. Plenty of goodness. And um, also we'll get to the real headlines with Terry South in a minute. But by the way, Pluto demoted day. Today is the day. Yes, it was about 11 years ago. Pluto was demoted. First, it was uh, it, for, it had a, a status as a planet. But uh, in 2006, it was demoted to being a dwarf planet. We've had Mo Pluto. Mr. Pluto on the show many times. He's he's a I was going to say he's a he's a contributor to the show, but he's really not contributed much. Reoccurring guest. He's a reluctant, reoccurring guest. Reluctant guest. He's a reluctant reoccurring reoccurring guest. Um, but sad day for Pluto today. Demoted eleven years ago. Good of you to not call him up and gloat. I was going to call him, but then he got kind of irritable last time, so we're not. Um, that may be our last interplanetary or planetary conversation. Is that the word? In, in, our last conversation with a planet. Interplanetary? But inter, it seems like it would be between two planets and I'm a human and he's a planet. Hmm. I don't know. We ought to have some of our researchers figure out that one. Interbeing? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's get to the headlines. Speaking of beings, let's get to uh, Terry South with our headlines. Uh, Terry, what uh, what should we do? To uh, what, what do we need to pay attention to? What can we ignore when it comes to the headlines? What should we do? Yeah, about all these crazy things going on in the world. 
Uh, just finishing a text. Um, so, Houston. Wow. <laughs> Sorry about that. Houston. Next time. I'll... Sorry, I'm producing the show and reading <laughs> oh, the news. Okay, yeah. That's some of the, the issues here. Um, so, Houston is facing off with a hurricane, possibly. Governor Greg Ta- Abbott of Texas declared a preemptive state of disaster to 30 counties in Louisiana. Governor uh, John Bell Edwards set up a crisis task force to prepare for Tropical Storm Harvey, expected to make landfall in Texas Friday night or Saturday morning, a Category 1 hurricane. The National Weather Service uh, state and local officials especially worried about Harvey because it's slow-moving and expected to dump 10 to 15 inches of rain or more on Houston and surrounding areas over the weekend as it crawls northeastern. So it's not necessarily the wind. It's going to be the rain and the amount of... uh, Storm surge as it pushes water in from the ocean. They're looking at five to six feet above ground in wow. the Houston area. Shouldn't we? Uh, I like how they do this alphabetically, and I, I get that now we're on H's. But couldn't they name it like Hercules? Storm Hercules it can't be like Harvey. Harvey, Harvey doesn't work for you. Is kind of a soft, gentle name. Harvey. I don't know. It is just it? seems well. It just seems like you should name it something with more. It's a it's a hurricane for heaven's sake. Isn't Harvey an invisible bunny? No idea. Hmm. No idea. Hercules. That's hmm. the name. That's the name of a real storm. All right. Okay. Just throwing my idea out there. Uh, Twenty-eight more Kmart stores are set to close as Sears continues to struggle. Sears said Thursday that it's closing twenty-eight more stores. Uh, the turbulence in the retail sector, no signs of letting up for them. That will bring the number of Sears and Kmart stores closed this year to 358. Sears is fighting fiercely to stay afloat, announcing earlier this year its plans to sell Kenmore appliances on Amazon and cashing in on assets like Land's Inn and Craftsman and hundreds of brick-and-mortar stores. Fortune writes, uh, sales more than 13% at Sears and more than 9% at Kmart in the quarter that ended in July declines that outpaced Macy's and JCPenney. So they're just not being able to dig themselves out of this spiral they're in. Okay. And able to save the business. It's almost to the point like, why are they trying to save it? It yeah. seems to be showing momentum that you can't stop. The guy that's running it now, I read an article, he spends most of his time in his Florida home just oh, trying really? to figure out ways to sell off craftsmen and lands in and make deals for yeah. all the real estate they own. And just try to, you know, cut, I, sell the sell the company off for parts. Well, I know what, what they could do to save Kmart. What's that? Blue light specials. Bring them. Well, they bring brought them back. back. They did bring them back. It didn't help. Maybe what they need is blue light specials with a siren. Oh. They always just do blue lights. Ooh, yeah. They do blue light specials, but now they need blue light specials with a siren. Boy, hmm. that'll bring them in. See what happens. Maybe, adult, maybe it was alarming people. Thinking something was happening in the store that was dangerous. That's probably true. That's yeah. Nowadays, now it's like, oh great, there's some violence going on at Kmart. No, it's a blue light special. And this, <laughs> and this news just came in. U.S. Interior Secretary Zinke come again tells uh, the AP that he's recommending changes to a handful of national monuments, but but not eliminating any. Okay. He's been reassessing all of these presidential monuments that were made by Bush, Clinton, and President Obama. Oh, so all the monuments will stay. So they're saying they'll all stay. They'll probably change how they've been configured. Okay. There's a lot of groups out there that would this like is, to see this. This is a big deal because this was President Trump trying to fix some monuments that President Obama had put in right. and eliminate them, which people in the West are like, yeah, eliminate them. Some are. Yeah. Others aren't. 
Right. It's a it's a divisive. Sounds issue. Sounds like a Zinky Hinky Zinky figured it out. I don't know. <laughs> he says that the interior department's in the energy business now. Oh, good. So Yellowstone will have you know oil drilling, I guess. Right I next know. to Old Faithful. Who knows? Bidding summer goodbye is never easy, but one particular reminder never fails to irritate shoppers. The invasion of Halloween treats and pumpkin spice in stores everywhere, months before the holiday. Lately, it seems impossible to step into a convenience store or supermarket without being blinded by orange displays of Halloween candy, and shoppers are taking notice. Food marketing expert Dr. Sean Corey of St. Joseph University studied the effect that Halloween marketing has on shoppers and said that the logic behind the early arrival of Halloween candy affects buyers in three ways. First, it's used to get people excited for the holiday. It also presents an element of fear that guilt parents into purchasing items for their children. Right. And finally, it sets off mindset flags that alert consumers of the season's items. Mindset flags. Yeah, whatever. And finally... Come on. So, and this it is, sells more candy, while, period. While such early season offerings may seem ludicrous to some, it sounds like the perfect timing for others. According to the National Retail Foundation, each year, about 40% of consumers begin their shopping for holiday gifts before Halloween. Realistically, <sighs> anyone st- st- stocking up nine weeks in advance will be tempted to dig in long before All Hallows' Eve and go back to the store for more candy. There are countries that have no food on the shelves for a variety of reasons. Right. Maybe they should stock up for Halloween. And we are like, we really need our Halloween candy out earlier. Well, So I know when... Those Snickers bars are fun-sized. <laughs> I never described that amount of a Snickers bar as fun. Yeah. I've give never me had more, fun. Give me more fun. My level of fun is a lot. My level is five of those. Yeah. Five of those really make, make like it fun. A king size bar is fun. Why don't you just on. call that fun size? So it, August isn't even over yet, but you can get yourself some Halloween candy. <sighs> Do they not recognize that they're robbing Paul Peter to pay Paul? I believe they don't see a drop in sales the entire time. So they Boy. see people just keep buying candy. I'm going to save this for Halloween, and then they eat it that week. What would you prefer they use that real estate for? Hey, leave it empty. Really? Yeah. They're running a business. They... I know. Yeah, so what? Okay. Leave it empty. Well, like, hey, 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 this is the this is the Isle of Hope. This is the <laughs> Isle of Future Gifts. It is interesting. That it's always the seasonal aisle. That has this type of product on right. it. And during the summer months where there's nothing going on, it's just full of like those really cheap inflatable pool toys. By the way, we, we are bringing up this topic one minute before we talk about food stamps. By the way... There are people on food stamps that can't go down that aisle that's... because they're trying to just eat. And we're like, I know, but we need, a, we, need, we need a flag to know when the next holiday's coming. So there's all this candy... And yet I can't find one of those new bags of M&Ms that Terry talked about the other day, like the white pumpkin patch, pie. Yeah. Pumpkin yeah. Patch. Pumpkin spice. Something like latte that. Latte pie. I can't find them anywhere. Yeah. I know. You know what? Let it go. You can't have any. You're on a diet. I know, but I want to have them in my possession, even if I can't eat them. So they can melt in your pocket? You got those hot pockets. Hot Pocket. You haven't had a Hot Pocket for a month. I haven't had a Hot Pocket probably since I was 12 years old. Now I'll hook you up. I know a guy. Okay, up next we're going to be talking about how Utah is uh, doing some innovative things to help keep the American dream alive. 
interesting insights into food stamps and, uh, you know, regaining hope in America and in your dream. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Recently, Utah Congress uh, congressmen have been working on new bills to help reduce dependency on food stamps. These bills would require able-bodied recipients without dependent children to prove they're searching for jobs, something Alabama has already done. And so to talk with us about finances and uh, really uh, economics uh, of, uh, and mobility – for for people that are struggling financially uh, is a professor from Brigham Young University, um, uh, Dr. David Sims. He's a professor here of economics at uh, BYU, also got his, earned his Ph.D. from MIT in 2004. We appreciate you being with us, David. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you, Matt. So, I mean, we – and I think we don't understand. I think the average person doesn't understand the impact of food stamps – and, and really, probably the the impact it has on a person's life. Um, talk to us about the American dream. I mean, is it is it really still alive for the majority of people? Well, that of course depends on how you want to define the American dream. But the idea that disturbs people today is that we've sort of wanted to believe about our nation over our history, both that. Our fortunes are not tied too deeply to the fortunes of our parents, yeah. right? That we succeed or, or, or fail on our own merits. Yep. And we also sort of want to deeply believe that our children will have a, a better a outcome future. than we will. Yeah. Right. And what a lot of economists have been discovering is that both of those aren't maybe quite as clear cut as we thought before. Interesting. Right? Yeah. So – For example, um, over the generations immediately following World War II, um, most people could expect to have higher incomes than their parents. And that's no longer the case, Hmm. right? For many, many groups of people, um, the expectation is now they'll have about an equal standard of living or maybe even worse. Lower than. Is that what you call intergenerational mobility, economic mobility? Sure. Intergenerational economic mobility is just this concept of how – deeply tied to your parents, statistically, right, is your own economic success. Well, is this why we see millennials, for example, as a generation, maybe clinging closer to home, living at home, needing a little more support? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons behind that, right? There's probably a lot more to it than simply that. But certainly, there is this sense that there is less economic opportunity at least a lot of them feel that there's less economic opportunity for them. That's certainly true. And certainly the data bears out that a, a lot of them are not going to be economically better off for, for, for their future than their parents were. And, and that's something new and something that we're trying to get you know, yeah. grips on because the last couple of generations, that, that wasn't the case. Boy, that, and that really, when you think about it, that is kind of earth shattering yeah. as, a, as a concept. We've always assumed it would get better. Right. And again, it, it'll get better overall. And for some people, they will exceed it. But hmm. we used to just have this expectation that for almost everyone, that would be the case. And th- that seems to not be true. And th- the other thing is it seems to be – it also used to be the case that if you were poor, you had a greater chance of exceeding your parents. Oh, yeah. Right? 
kind of inevitable. You, right. You'd have more opportunity, more mm-hmm. education. You'd pull yourself and, out. And sort of what, what the data suggests now is two things which I, I know disturb a lot of people. And the because we like to think, again, of America as being a place where our fortunes don't depend so deeply on the fortunes of our parents. And what we find in the data is both that that is less the case than in many countries in Europe. Um, there's a much higher, much stronger relationship between how economically you will do in life and how your parents did than there is, for instance, in Sweden or Denmark or even France and Germany. And again, that's disturbing to some people. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess part of this is so then so our government then creates policies, Mm -hmm. structures to help facilitate uh, some progress in this. One of that one of those were food stamps. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about talk about something like food stamps, because um, there are people now pushing, say, they're, they're saying that there needs to be a work requirement. If you're on food stamps, you need to have some ability or you need to be working. You need to be contributing. Well, what is the, what's the research behind what you're studying and, and upward mobility as well? So there's a couple – it depends on what your, your goals are, right? So as economists, we try, we try and clearly describe sort of the relationship between – what you do and, and what happens, right? And in terms of what you choose to do, when, once you understand that, it also depends sort of on the value judgments you want to make, what you want to prioritize. And so, so to talk about food stamps for a moment, um, the sort of point of the food stamp program initially was that so people didn't go hungry. Yeah. Right? Um, and the question is, um, is that the primary goal of the food stamp program or is the primary goal of the food stamp program to try and turn it into some incentive system to change people's behavior or to change the behavior of their children? Um, I, I don't know that much research on the food stamp program itself about yeah. this, but I know that when we reformed welfare in the 1990s to do this, right, there, there were the outcomes you would expect. Fewer people were on welfare. More people were working, but there were some that were neither. There were people that now were not eligible for welfare that weren't working, and they were certainly worse off. Interesting. So which goal do you think is most important? If yeah. the goal of food stamps is to feed people, then maybe you don't want to make them less accessible. Yeah. If the goal of food stamps is to try and get people to work hard, right? It, it depends on sort of your goals. Yeah, and what, yeah, and behind that, what are your assumptions behind the mm-hmm. the, the goal? Because one of the things that they're finding, for example, with those changes in place, Kansas, where there is a work requirement, Kansas saw a seventy five percent decrease of participants. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alabama saw an eighty five percent decrease of participants, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean. That They're people, pulling themselves out of this. Right. It doesn't mean does they it, didn't want to work. It does just, it mean they have jobs now? Yeah, we no, don't know. Right? We don't know the data there. It, it could mean a lot of things. Uh, one thing I will say is that there's just a surprisingly loose relationship between these types of programs and sort of your children's economic future, yeah. um, at least at the levels we fund them. Now, if we were to get rid of them, there would probably be a big change. But the difference is, for example – one of the things we've researched and looked at is trying to tie differences in how mobile children are relative to parents to their geography and to the types of policies their states have. Yeah. And there's really not much of a relationship. Oh, isn't there? No. Um, mobility is much more tied to, to other things that aren't necessarily about your, your state's policies, the types of things that happen in your community, yeah. how much exposure you have to different types of people. Right, how how little sort of racial and economic segregation there is. Right, 
right? We've and, talked about that on the show, for example, because like you know the Midwest. Um, or uh, the the Rust Belt, mm-hmm. where there's entire towns and communities took major hits as as places were being closed. Yes, less less coal, less uh, um, steel plants, fewer steel plants. I guess so. Some of that is what's impacting mobility too, right? And it's sure. it's impacting. It almost seems different communities. So it, it seems like originally. Or, or is it? You tell me as the economist. Because it, it used to be, I thought, kind of inner city mobility, economics, that, that no one was progressing. It didn't seem like as much there. Now it's middle America, Trump voters, and it's stirring a pot, it seems like. There's a lot of things in what yeah. you just said. Let me digest that for a second. I, I do know that there's, there is evidence that having really, really bad economic shocks to you strongly affects your life and it can affect the life of your parents, of your mm. children as yeah. well, right? And so plant closings, things like that, they, they disrupt your life and they disrupt the life of your children as well. Um, and and that, that's sort of inevitable, um, right? And, and what we are not necessarily very good at doing is understanding maybe how to – or coming up with the will and the desire to, to do something about that mm. that doesn't also sort of stifle – Progress, right? I, I have a colleague who did research on what happened to horse-related professions with the, oh, really? the advent of the automobile, yeah, right? Gone. And so, and yeah, and, and what he found out is that actually reduced the life expectancy of people who had those jobs. Interesting. It, it not right. Yeah, it not you don't only, think of that, right? And and one of the things they're trying to do now is link this to their children and see if it affected them as well. Hmm. But. But that doesn't necessarily mean for society it would have been a good thing to not have yeah, the automobile. We still have to progress. Right. So the question is, is there a way to allow that but also to deal with the very real concerns that people do lose out and that yeah. really does affect their economic fortunes? That's great. And when we don't attempt to address this, right, this is this is when we end up with social problems. No, right? exactly. Well, and we, and we see it and we even see I mean, we even see uh, opioid epidemics, right. suicide rates going up uh, among certain mm-hmm. groups in certain communities where sure. the, where certain dreams have been. But I mean, what's amazing too is it's it, it, I didn't you don't realize how fluid this is. It's 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 a it's like a fluid moving through the country depending on your community, your profession, mm-hmm. your you know, what how you're making your money. Mhm. And and a lot of a lot of it depends right on your expectations of the future as much as what actually is happening to you right if you had a certain expectation for the future and it's disappointed right yeah. it can it can be incredibly hard or if you have expectations that the future will be bad it can be even worse than right yeah. What is actually going on at yeah. the time? What were you anticipating? Uh, we're speaking again with Dr. David Sims, professor at BYU, uh, here at BYU in economics, and uh, we'll continue the journey in a minute. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see the other side and understand uh, how to prepare your lives the best you can for what's straight ahead. Stick with us. We're talking about how to keep the American dream alive and uh, economic mobility and intergenerational mobility economically. Your ability for your children to have 
you know, the same economic benefits that you had, or we used to believe they could have more, uh, make actually more money than you were making. That was always the hope of a parent that they would hand that down to their kids. But uh, today, the research is showing that may not be happening, happening, especially in certain communities. Uh, joining us to talk about it is a BYU professor of economics, Dr. David Sims, and uh, he's walking us through um, th- this concept of mobility, the ability to, I guess, to move, to be fluid, to to be mm-hmm. able to continue on economically. But what you're saying, which I think is a really important point for all of us, this isn't we, – we always kind of thought this was an individual thing. Like if you're just a strong American, you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you'll be fine. But you're saying mobility is deeply, deeply tied to where you live, the community you're in, what you know, mm-hmm. and what your community knows. Right. And if we look at – what's striking is if we look at places in the United States that still have high mobility. There are places where – children of poor parents have a lot of exposure to people who are successful, hmm. right? Yeah. And there's this knowledge that people in the middle class and the upper middle class sort of take for granted about how to do simple things. Like we talk about you know, making college free, for example. Yeah. Well, most community colleges in many places are free, but you have to fill out a financial aid form that is incredibly <laughs> opaque. Yeah, yeah. Opaque. And – you have to jump through a bunch of hoops. And there's a sort of knowledge about how the system works and understanding that comes with having experienced it. Uh, economists like to call it you know, social capital or social yeah. networks, right? And if you don't have access to these, then it's, it can be very hard, right. right, as an individual to overcome those kind of barriers, almost as much or more so than financial barriers. Isn't that – and just getting in – Mm-hmm. just to get the loans and the application process and I guess to even believing you can do it. Sometimes sure. you need people that – I had a guy that I, – because I didn't think I was going to go to college and one of my uh, kind of church uh, leaders sat me down once and said, no, 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 you're going to college. Yeah. And I, it was the first time in my mind I had ever thought I am. Like I got bad grades in high school and he's like, no, no, you're going. Yeah, no, for sure. And we'll show you how to do it and we'll get you into a school. And, and it's like, oh, OK. But if you don't have that kind of mentorship, but also you have to have you have to have jobs in the community that actually you can go from college to get the job, I'm assuming. And you also have to have the right training in the school, the, in, mm-hmm. in the universities or the tech schools that provide the knowledge to get the job. I mean, there's a lot that has to line up. Sure. There, there's a lot of a lot of moving parts. Yeah. I think the, the greatest barrier to most people is, again, the knowledge of how to navigate the system, the knowledge of which of those programs will fit well with them and will get them the kind of job they want, yeah. just how to deal with the bureaucracy, how to go about getting fun. It just could be almost overwhelming. Oh, yeah. You, we had a, a researcher come through presenting information on you know, why students drop out of community colleges or other things at, at a high rate. And a lot of it had to do with people who are just setting themselves up in untenable situations, you know, trying to have a job 50 miles away from where they go to school, which is 30 miles away from where they go to class. And, of course, feeling run ragged yeah. when, when somebody who was in the know could have, you know, sat them down and said you can get uh, – it's not a great job either. No. I think they were like working at Subway, right? But – Right. You can get that kind of a job on campus. Yeah. You can get that right. And and you can streamline your life and make it. You can easier. do this. You can right. do this. Just that it never occurred to mm-hmm. them. Right. 
So and and then what? I guess then what's interesting is they can. I guess it's tenable for a year mm-hmm. or a year and a half until the curveball comes, and now their car breaks down. Sure, and then because there are a lot that get mm-hmm. in, even get loans, and then quit. So all of a sudden you're quitting midstream too, which and then you're carrying the debt, and you don't have a job, and you're still stuck. Right. And and communities such as we often have here in Utah provide not just sort of mentorship and knowledge and things. They also provide sort of insurance. When something really goes wrong, you have friends next we door got who can step in and help you. Yeah. yeah. You Boy. have people you know and you do the same for them. And so, so to some extent, yes, you have to put in a lot of individual effort to succeed yeah. in these things. Nobody would ever disparage that. But for a lot of people, the barriers have to do with, again – understanding what they should be doing, That's where right. they should be applying their effort for it to be successful. And it's almost like we we try to throw an answer like, well, let's just give – let's give free schooling for everybody. Mm-hmm. OK. But we still haven't overcome these other barriers of how to get right. into the school, how to apply to the school, how to choose the right profession, how mm-hmm. to – or the one that works for you. I mean it really is – we need we need more maybe mentoring. We need more mm-hmm. – we need to like almost create a stronger connection to the individual from these in institutions. Well, and also one, one thing we've also found a lot of economists have studied is that you know setting defaults to be things that people a lot of people just tend to go with whatever the default is, mm-hmm. whatever the, the easiest thing to do is, right? At least initially, and then discover if they like it or not. Right. And so it, instead of, for example, making people fill out an eighteen-page financial aid form. You can basically streamline it into checking a couple boxes and putting in a few numbers. Uh, they did an experiment like this in Canada. They got a lot more participation in community college. Did they really? They got more persistence of people continuing, right? Yeah. And no, it's a very simple thing to do. <laughs> it's right? it's very simple. And I I'm, I got a PhD and couldn't figure out student loan forms, and I was it was confusing. And it's almost like they make it confusing. And it's every year and it's every – it's hard. I don't think they mean to make no, it confusing, right? it's just right? how our government works, it seems like. Well, once you have a lot of knowledge in an area, you just kind of forget other people don't, don't right? And, yeah. and so you write the form and you know how to fill in yeah. the form and you understand what you're doing. And, and every time you make a change, it seems like a very small change, but it makes it more complex. It makes right? And we have a lot of, of complexity in things that's a, a barrier to people. David, what would what advice would you give? We've got about a minute. What advice would you give um, for the individual, maybe the family mm-hmm. that is in a community that isn't, uh, you know, ripe for mobility? Mm-hmm. Well, one encouraging thing that we have found is your children's mobility actually doesn't have all that much to do with your income in the sense that if you just go out and make more money, it has to do with your human capital, sort of your skills, your interest in the world, your your willingness to do that. And those are things that you can change about yourself and that will help your children. That's interesting. So that um, skills, your interest in the world, I guess your connections. Sure. And those are things that can be changed as, as individuals and as families. Um, it, it takes work and, and desire, but those are things that 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 we have the power to change. That's interesting. Yeah, and it almost seems like one generation that can change that mm-hmm. could set up, you know, could change the could change the future generations for your family. It, it is amazing how, in certain instances, right, little things snowball and become yeah. big. Right? 
Powerful stuff. Dr. David Sims is his name, professor here at BYU in the economics department. David, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Matt. Great insight in how to keep the American dream alive. It is about uh, economic mobility. It's also about community and uh, really human capital when it comes down to it. We'll continue the journey, folks. Up next, BYU Sports Nation. We're going to check in with them, find out what uh, what's going on on their show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Up next, don't sound discouraged, our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. We're going to find out uh, what's coming up on their show today. Hello, gentlemen. Is that Jeff Crank? Look, That's just Jeff because Crank. the Dodgers blew a no-hitter yes. and gave up a walk-off home oh. run is no reason to cry. There's no crying in baseball. Well, there is, right? So if you're Rich Hill and... You've pitched a no-hitter nine innings. A perfect game nine innings uh, until an error was made. What do you do? Do you do you then when you get in the when you get in the dugout, are you like mad? Are you looking at the guy that, that had the error? It's kind air? of a bummer in a way. But then the Dodgers go, Boo hoo. We're fifty three <laughs> games above five hundred. Boo hoo. <laughs> Jerem's just just really worried that the uh, Dodgers are going to break his Mariners' incredible win number from 2001. I actually would be okay with the Dodgers breaking it because the Mariners are – the comment is always, but they lost. They didn't win anything. Yeah. So it's tainted in a way. So So it's like kissing your sister. If the Doyers won 117, it'd be great. Have you guys ever pitched a no-hitter or a perfect game? This one time, I played MLB The Show 08, and it came within, like, two outs. Oh, you were so Wait, close. Wait, if you could, like, MLB The Show, like, there there was this contest a few years back that you could win a million dollars if you could throw a perfect game in that video game. Really? This one time, stayed up way past midnight, me and my friends. <laughs> was that last no, year? I, yeah. That's not happening. Was it last Generally, year? video game guys don't sound like that. No. That's the surfer. Uh, they uh, sound boy like this. Uh... According to my calculations, uh, I was playing Halo uh, with my Funyuns, and uh, they spilled all over me. It was crazy. You were playing Halo with your Funyuns or while uh, eating Funyuns? I had my Funyuns in one hand and the controller in the other, Spencer. <laughs> That's some great voice, right? That's some great sound. We're, we will be using that for the next year. I had Funyuns the other day just because oh, I hadn't had them. In a I time. love Funyuns. They're all right. I right. like feel lightly sick every time after you know you're like yeah eh, that's that just it? the that's just the sodium was that worth it <laughs> too much sodium bro. that's just the nitrites um, so what uh, what's coming up on your show today gentlemen today the Portland State Project the most unique interview we've ever done on BYU Sports Nation today yes. does it involve a past Super Bowl coach yes. it does and that coach being on a boat. Oh, is he on a boat He's on the phone? On a boat. We recorded it earlier. We'll air it during the show. <laughs> Hit He's it. on a boat in the Chesapeake Bay. Is he really? Yes. How when great. you're a Super Bowl champion head coach, yeah. you get to do some things later in retirement. Oh, yeah. Including captaining your own boat. Captain Billick will join us in but, the Chesapeake Bay. But notice he didn't want to, he wanted to be on the show so bad he stayed in the bay. He could have, you know, he could have just said, I'm not doing the show. But that's how much your show well, he's means cool to him. dude. He's a really cool he dude. He played tight end here. Yeah. And won a Super Bowl as a head coach in 
Yeah, the, he's big league. league. He's totally big league. He yeah. that guy. This is a great interview. And that's cool. And 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 he's on the boat. Is he like ahoy, mateys? Kind of. Well, we went there. We're like, Captain Billick. <laughs> yeah, he's like, we got the wind coming out of the northeast at 10 knots. Yeah, he like, used okay, knots. Okay, you're captain. You're captain. Like, All right, <laughs> now we're going. Captain Billichek. Bill, Billick, sorry, Billick. Yeah, we, we, yeah. We, yeah, we're happy to get Brian Billick because he'll answer our questions. Yeah. Who, who wouldn't? Yeah. Unlike Billichek. Bill Billichek wouldn't. Yeah, yeah Billichek wouldn't take it one game at a time. And we're hey, um, anything else on the show? Is that it? Just a little captain We're going to talk, talk uh, what you expect from BYU's offense against Portland State. Mm. FCS opponent, first game, what do you expect? What do you want, what do you want to see? And what does BYU traditionally do? Uh, what, do the, what does the G League, formerly known as the D League, and Jim or Fredette have to do with each other? And handsome Taniello, defensive lineman. He's got a little blonde flow in the back. What is that for? <laughs> well, why is that happening? Is uh, it... it deals with exercising the demons, okay? <gasps> really? So Los demonios. Back off. Los demonios. And what Tom Homo, the athletic director, said about the Notre Dame series yesterday at Education Week. There's a lot to discuss. Oh, is there a chance? Oh, my heavens. Unless there's not. Unless there's not. Are you going to have audio from uh, Senior Homo? You'll have to find out. This is good. Listen to BYU Sports Nation coming up next. It's just uh, Talk about good. It's about four minutes away, guys. You're not going to want to miss it. Spencer and Jerem, they are locked and loaded. Loaded with Funyuns, that is. I love it when they break into uh, different voices. Have you noticed they do that a lot? I was surprised they didn't just do a Jim Carrey impersonation there because Spencer said, exercise the demons. I was surprised they didn't say, I have exercised the demons. This house (laughs) is clear. Wow. Speaking of channeling voices. My chest hurts now. My chest hurts. Watching you hurt your chest, that was incredible. And they did uh, they they got um, they did a surfer dude, but they also did a, ga- a video gaming kid. It sounded eerily like Harry Carey as a nerd. It was a nerdy Harry Carey. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, not a bad not a bad thing, not a bad thing. Hey, as you know, we always like to wrap up the show with a hero story. Today's hero is a 10-year-old that saves his mother and new brother during early labor. 10-year-old boy saved the two lives uh, of his mother and uh, little brother when the mom went into labor on their bathroom floor. Jaden Fontenot delivered his baby brother Dax after his mom, Ashley, went into labor in their Louisiana home. Uh, Then, when he realized Dax wasn't breathing, the 10-year-old made the quick decision to grab a nasal aspirator to pump air into the infant's lungs. And making the story even more incredible is that the 36-year-old mother was bleeding profusely during the birth and that the baby was born initially breech, meaning it came out feet first. Because her fiancé, Kelsey Richard, had already left for work in the day, Ashley had to call to her son, Jaden, and ask him to run next door to get his grandmother. His grandmother called 911 for the boy. Um, but was unable to help uh, further than because she had already undergone some back surgery, so she couldn't walk. Jaden sprinted back to his home and said to his mom, tell me what I need to do and I'll do, do it. I was crying, but I just uh, tried to stay calm and collected, Ashley said. Jaden was so calm, it made me more calm. I could see he wasn't scared. Um, I could see he was scared, but he, uh, you know, he did what he had to do. So he saves his brother, Dax. He saves his mother. An ambulance shows up and all is well. 
Every time I think about it, I just cry. I don't think Jaden understands what he did and how big of a deal it is. So, Jaden, you are the hero of the day, my friend, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We need more heroes, don't we? Not just to save lives, but to really lift hearts and souls of one another. Let's look after each other. It's a small world. We'll be back again tomorrow. And BYU Sports Nation, it's up next. It's up next.